there. Welcome to the Heavy Hole. My name is Tom. Whoa, my name is Big Will, a.k.a. Uncle. I'm your boogeyman. Hey, guys. <laughs> it's Justin. <laughs> as, as always. Man. Happy yeah. Halloween, Justin. Thanks, bud. What's Just going on? Reese's raining down from the sky. Uh, oh, wow. That's that's quite the picture. That's a better picture than the apocalyptic frogs raining down from the sky we expect to see shortly in 2020. Uh, we'll talk about that plague. Oh, boy. Happy Halloween, Tom. Happy Halloween, Will. Oh, boy. I can't wait to... Um... Actually, I have no plans because it's still COVID. <laughs> so I'll be uh, probably dressing up like a ghost by myself. Yeah, trick-or-treating is out, uh, but I live in Huntington Station, so it's always out. <laughs> they don't uh, let the kids come up Pulaski, man, that's for sure. I'm going to be uh, uh, door-dashing uh, some Kit Kats. <laughs> oh, there you go, man. Door-dash taking over the Halloween Hopefully game. not finding any razor blades in there. You know what uh, I mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, well, we're going to get into... Blades. Listen, uh, our Patreon people are already knee-deep in the haunted... Halloween, heavy hole, horrific, uh, spectacular going on with all these bonus episodes. Uh, but everyone is getting a treat today. Uh, this is our this is our happy Halloween uh, special um, in the whole episode. We're going to get to the guest. But before we get into all this craziness with the black cats and the, the razor blades and the candy bars, allegedly, and the killer clowns in the woods, what was going on before Halloween? How was your weekend going, Justin? Oh, it's great. Yeah, great week uh, so far. Um Heck, got a new puppy today. Wow. Yeah, really nice uh, little pit. Not ho- well, pit okay, now we're getting, now we're, it was not Halloween, now we're veering back towards Halloween with the pit bull. Yeah, she's vicious, but it's okay. fine. Yeah. It's pretty sick. Uh, New York Rangers drafting first overall tonight, you know, that's super fun. Okay. Shout out to hockey. Yes. And spooky goalies, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Miss, missing teeth sometimes, it's yeah. crazy. There you go, yeah, you know, uh huffing sawdust and working on the truck man so it's it's all really good over here how about you how is your week <laughs> uh my week i was very in tune with my body oh boy oh, I, wait. Uh, oh boy sensual i had to get a uh, some some outfit for my sister's wedding i have to look good and i don't i'm, I'm one of the those halloween types. costume yeah halloween costume mm-hmm. yeah she's getting married um <laughs> at midnight on yes. halloween uh, yeah do it by 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 candylight and bats yeah candylight um yeah so i've been trying uh, i've been i was went to i went to the mall have you guys yeah. been to the mall recently uh, i i allegedly yeah. uh there's an uncle of mine shout to big frank and i do take him mall walking very yes. strange being in there now um uh, business yeah. is closed mm-hmm. the apple store is just lining people up as they do um Lord and Taylor's closing. I've never seen a store so messy in my life. Mm-hmm. I, you know, it's funny you bring this up because uh, I've been t- I've been telling my uncle we got to go back there on payday so we can you know get some of those get some of that rich people gear. It reminds me of that, that clothing store I wanted to open, and now there's room in the market for uh, Lord Worm and Taylor. Lord, yes. oh, so, love it. You could buy it. you could buy things like yeah, lo- Lord, yeah, yeah. Lord, so Lord Worm and Taylor Dane mm-hmm. collaboration coming at you. What uh, spooky uh, clothing did you uh, end up going with? Uh, I don't like to get one color suits. I like to change it up all the time. Mm-hmm. It allows for some flexibility where it's like, oh, the last wedding I went to, I could fit into that those pants, and then I'll get a new blazer. Changing it up, um, longevity. To which I, I realize that I have freakishly long arms. Mm. Terrible. Because things that seem to be fitting perfectly come up, you know, almost halfway up the forearm. 
the best. Uh, Flexibility is the reason I go with sweatsuits. That, that's the type of suit I usually try to rock. I mean, better to reach you with. I, th I think that's a that's a good way to go when you can get away with sweat. But uh, that was actually on the invitation that only a few people got because it's a COVID wedding. Yeah. No so, sweatsuits. That's what I said. Anyway, Will, how was your week, man? Uh, busy, busy, man. Um, it felt, it, if I squinted my eyes a little bit this past weekend, it almost felt like regular life again because uh, we we actually had a, uh, the first Reeking Aura rehearsal, full band rehearsal in a long time. Working on new material, new songs, uh, getting up with the guys, wearing cute little masks, everything happened. Yeah, we did it. And then the next day on Sunday, uh, Afterbirth rehearsal. Afterbirth's been, been rehearsing a little more frequently. Um, saw my man Keith Harris on the drums two days in a row. Man, it was great just to be working on new material with both bands, uh, new ideas floating around. Man, it, it, it was just nice, man. Nice to see the guys again, and um, just a, a little, uh, a little sprinkle of uh, of, 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 of old school uh, regular life, you know. Yeah. So that was good. We're getting there, man. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so new material coming out. I'm still working on my little. Uh, one man noise um, adjacent project. It's just gonna be. Uh, it's not gonna sound like Archspire or anything clean mm. and musically adept. It's gonna be horrible, my project. But um, <laughs> uh, but you know, man, I I'm just I do it for the love of the game, man. People are like, well, you got all these different bands you're involved in and all this stuff, man. And it's it's like, man, yeah, I'm, it's a blessing, man. I love it. I love working with all these musicians and stuff, man. And I'm inspired by the OGs uh, in the death metal game, the original people, man, the people that stuck through. And tonight, for our Halloween episode, uh, we have the privilege of welcoming to the Heavy Hole Podcast for hopefully the first of many times, uh, King Fowley of the band's deceased on October 31st. Oh, boy. It's yeah, so much fun. A uh, man I look up to wow. and hold in high regard. I've met him once as a fan, you know, over the years, as, as have many people. Um... So yeah, so uh, we're we're gonna get we're gonna go full speed ahead into this um, King Fowley interview, All right, guys? Unless you have anything else to add, no, uh, nope. Put him on the phone. Big Will, Heavy Hole Podcast here. Uh, the whole crew is here, but you guys don't care about us because tonight our very special Halloween guest is none other than King Fowley of Deceased and October 31st. How you doing, King? Cheers. Good. I love the Halloween guest. That's perfect for me, man. Spooky. <laughs> exactly. I'm going, That's why we had to I'm going great, man. Thanks for having me, man. Of course, man. We appreciate having you. And as I said, I just want to uh, pre preface this interview a little bit. Uh, the listeners know we normally go back all the way, childhood and, and first band and all that sort of stuff. But the actual reason, uh, King, why I haven't gotten in touch up until this point in time is because you've done a lot of interviews. And I thought the Metal Beer and BS podcast did a great job about a year, maybe a year and a half ago, of doing a real biographical style interview with you. You, you recall that one? I do, man. It was real good. You're right. It was, it was a fun time for sure. Yeah, man, and you've been on like the Hellcat, the Hell, Hell's Headbangers, Hellcast, and a, a variety of places. You go back, so the listeners, um, you know, they they can look up a lot of stuff and look up some of those resources. And if they can actually find a copy, you had your uh, autobiography um, uh, a few years ago. Uh, it was um, I had the Stay title ugly. right here. 
Stay ugly. Stay ugly. That's right. I'm, I'm sorry. I have my notes right here, and they're all no, mixed no up. No worries. No worries at all. Yeah, unfortunately, the book's out of print now. It, it was. It, it did two presses. It did really good. I think it did better than we ever thought it would. And it's kind of like in, in limbo now out of press. But I'm probably going to repress it at some point. I've thought about it a bunch. Yeah, I, I, I'm caught out here kind of with my pants down for the listeners because I don't own a copy, and I'm supposed to do all the research. But... Um, uh, you know, I just want to preface that with, with uh, you know, your, your story is out there and, and that sort of thing. Uh, so getting, so, and just in case people feel like I skipped over something, I don't want to step on other people who've interviewed you very recently, you know? No worries. So uh, so going back, King, your story in metal uh, as a performer, as a musician, as a creative personality goes back, if I'm not mistaken, to when you're like 10 or 11 years old playing in kind of a cover band, right? Yeah, it was a little band. It was called Slack Tide. Uh, that name came from my friend Bill Ford. Uh, we, 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 were, we were Kiss buddies in school. We were basically, you know, we were all into Kiss in fifth, sixth grade and all this. And we lived in, I'm originally from Virginia, and I lived most of my life growing up in Arlington, Virginia. And we went to a school together in elementary called McKinley. And we basically uh, were the best of friends. We were the Kiss freaks. We were the ones watching Kiss meets the Phantom in 1978 on Halloween. Yeah, and... It's all that kind of crazy, you know, all the fun shit, you know, and, and then basically he moved to Savannah, Georgia in 1980. And when he moved, you know, our friendship kind of suffered. We had back then long distance wasn't like it is today, man. You had to pay a heavy fine, to, you know, a big fee to talk on the phone to somebody in Georgia back then. I think it was like three dollars a minute or something with, wow. with our, our phone. So we lost touch. You know, we tried to do pen paling and stuff, but I hadn't really gotten into all that part of uh, anything yet. But. He called me and he said that he wanted to do a band. And I said, well, how the fuck are we going to do a band, dude? You know, and he said, well, I got a name, Slack Tide. And he said, my dad, his dad worked for Radio Shack, which was the Tandy Corporation. Smart, genius guy. I remember him dressing uh, Bill up as Ace Freely and he had the smoking guitar and the platform boots for Halloween one year. And uh, he was just a smart guy. And he said, you know, hey, tell King and them, come down here. And I said, well, what do you want me to do, dude? I barely play. I had just started playing the bass. And he said, well, you know, we can just learn a few of the generic songs. And I said, well, what the, what the fuck are we going to do? And he goes, I don't know. I said, who's going to be in the band? What are you going to do, Bill? Bill said, I've learned to play the drums a bit over the last year. And I'm, I'm thinking, this ain't going to fly. There's no fucking way. So I sit down, and the first thing I pick up on is Kiss Love Gun, which was one of our favorite tunes together. Yeah. And I said, well, we got bass, we got drums. Who else is going to be in this fucking band? So I asked a friend, Andy, who was in fifth grade. We were sixth graders at the time. He was in fifth grade, and he could play the guitar a little bit. And he said, you know, I'll learn some tunes. What do you want to play? So I went back to Bill, and Bill's dad said, you know, just learn the songs of now, right? And the songs of now were My Sharona from The Knack. It was, it was You May Be Right from Billy Joel. We threw the Kiss Love Gun tune in there. We did fucking Train Kept a Rollin' Aerosmith version, which was Andy's idea. He was an Aerosmith freak. We had those in there, Rock and Roll Fantasy from Bad Company. And we learned these five songs, literally homework, me and Andy in Arlington, Bill down in Savannah. We actually got on a bus, went to Savannah, Georgia, and, uh, learned, and went down there and learned these tunes as a three-piece that week. And I mean, some of those songs, there's a lot more going on than that, but you know, you're talking 12, 12-year-old, 11-year-old, kid hack jobs but we played we rocked this country club's ass dude uh his mom <laughs> bought us the church day of the kmart we had the we had the iron on you know late 70s early 80s iron on t-shirt slack tied we all had our own color motifs i was blue and yellow and i think bill was red and black and and fucking it was cool it was cool as shit but um i was just telling a friend this the other day we were talking about this but this girl 
came and she said, I want to play, I want to play. And she talked Bill's mom into letting us have, do something with her. And we were like, she's not into what we're into at all. You know, we, we wanted to do Kiss. We wanted to do Van Halen. We wanted to do Ted Nugent Hart, things like that, which we, we you know, we dumbed down a little bit with the knack and shit like that, which was still fine. And I sang some of it. The first song I ever sang on the stage was that day. And it was, you may be right by Billy Joel, which ain't bad for what it is. But, you know, obviously it's a start. I, you know, it's a start. But this girl got up there and she just went in front of a piano by herself and she played Mario Speedwagon, Keep On Loving You. And she stole the crowd. The crowd was like, oh, you know, she's so cute and adorable and all that shit. But that was my first experience. And literally, that was the only thing we did with that band. And then Bill ended up, this is pretty wild real quick. Bill ended up moving to California with his dad again, Tandy Corporation. They were all over the place. Went to California. He started up a new wave band, which didn't have a name, but he sent me a demo. And I thought he was going to go down this, uh, you know, this flock of seagulls kind of sound, which was he's going about 84 here now. But he ended up in a band called um, Necropolis, who ended up doing some great demos that people love, death metal stuff. And then he ended up living in a house with John Hand, who's the famous guy that didn't play on the Scream Bloody Gore album with Death. He was actually roommates with this guy. So Bill went on on the West Coast to be a death metal kind of guy, too. And, you know, and I obviously in Virginia, as time went on, I actually started another band in about 83 called Messenger. And we were kind of like a Twisted Sister type of thing. We had songs like Turn It Loud and fucking Grinding Heads, things like that. So that's kind of like my introduction to it all. And I was still playing bass then in Messenger. But when we recorded this demo, we actually got back together about a year after we disbanded. And I was still playing bass. I said, you know, I didn't even pick up that fucking bass since we did these songs. So we went and did a demo in 83 called Fuck Off. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, it was a four. I remember it was a Grinding Heads, Turn It Loud. It was a guitar piece called Whisper by a guitar player, Jamie. He was really into Randy Rhodes, so it was very D-influenced. And then we had one more that was called Noise. It was just like some intro thing we were going to do if we played live, but we never went further than that. So that, that was my early days of becoming a band or learning how to be sort of a band. Yeah, okay, man. And, and, and what really struck me, what I wanted to ask about that is the idea of being, I guess you, uh, you could say um, 12, 11 years old in that range, and you guys took a bus from Arlington, Virginia to, to Savannah, Georgia, um, to, 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 I guess, perform that show, if I got that right. Could you just give the listeners an idea of how long a bus ride that is and how that's a it, little... It was, about, it was about 12 hours. I mean... Yeah, for, you, for 11 you, you year olds, that's kind of wild. You wouldn't, think in the, you wouldn't think in this day and age, parents, like any, any... It was just me and Andy. It wasn't our parents with us. It was nobody else. It was me and Andy. He was 11, I was 12. And we literally were on the... You know what? Yep, I was. I just had turned 12. I think it was in July. My birthday's in July. I just turned 12. So Andy might even have still been... 10 and a half, not even 11 yet. But we got on the bus. I remember going through South Carolina and stopping at south of the border and all that kind of <laughs> shit. It was, it was crazy. It was also the first time I ever saw uh, delivery pizza because I guess Domino's sort of, I don't know if it started there, but I remember them having Domino's Jeeps uh, there wow. uh, in, in Georgia and, and them bringing pizza to the house. And I thought that was really fucking cool in 1980. Wow, they bring pizza to your fucking house. I remember that. <laughs> <laughs> the, the Noid re really creeped me out as a kid. Remember the Noid? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, the, absolutely. Uh, avoid the Noid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was avoiding him as a kid. Um, well, that's that's interesting because something I wanted to get into, uh, maybe, not, you know, I didn't want, not this early, but let's bring it up now because we're talking about um, your your childhood, you traveling, and it's, it just seems kind of crazy nowadays to think about that. Um, you know, society's changed. And something we've talked about on the show frequently is the idea that 
Back in the 80s and 90s, you didn't have as much surveillance. Uh, you didn't have as much smartphones everywhere, social media everywhere. And um, I get the impression that maybe drugs and uh, violence were a little bit more prevalent and free in society but because of that. W would you agree with that? And do you have any input on that? I mean, I, I, I was just a kid. I was seeing the world through a kid's eyes. So to get on a bus and go to fucking uh, Georgia, you know, to me, it was like I might as well have been going to uh, Romania. It was just a million miles away. I had, you know, I'd always walked my streets. I grew up in a, in a, in a blue-collar little town. We, were, we weren't rich by any means. We were poor, if anything, and we lucked into a nice house because my mom had a friend that actually owned a house. And she actually rented it to us in 76. We had moved to this house. And we actually were living above our means if someone was to see it from the street. But my mom knew the lady. She gave us a deal on the rent, things like that. So we were, we were poor in that sense. But, you know, we, we left our doors open. We left our windows open. And I was right outside of Washington, D.C., which was famous even in the 70s, well, really in the 70s and the 80s for lots of violence and troubles. It was kind of like 42nd Street was in New York. We had that down in like Anacostia, Washington, D.C. And like even Georgetown, which was a, you know, a, a touristy spot. There were people getting mugged and killed down there all the time. And I remember all kinds of things happened at the Iwo Jima Memorial right outside that and, you know, in, in deep Arlington and stuff. So there was a lot of crime, a lot of drugs. I mean, I, I, I know for a fact, you know, as a kid hearing stories of that, you know, but it seemed a million miles away from me because I was just a kid and all I did was go to school, go home or go play football with the kids or, you know, listen to my kids. So I was, you know, I didn't have a big uh, outside world to, to latch to, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and maybe just more specifically like uh, heavy metal or, or, you know, hardcore punk, whatever, extreme music shows. Um, how would you say maybe like, because you've been going to metal shows since the early 80s through till when they just shut them down this year, like everything else. How, how has the climate changed? Um, have, have, has, has it always been kind of like the same level of violence and, and drugs and sex, or, or have things fluctuated? Does it change with society? It, it has. I mean, you know, as the world is weird as shit now. You know, and I call it the pussification of planet Earth. There's a lot of, of really lightweight, you know, bullshit going on in the world. I just see so much sissy stuff going on in, in, in any, anything, any topic you want, you can choose, whether it be metal, sex, any anything in the world. It seems like everything now is so fucking tender. It's just fucking weird. And I remember it was wide open. Now, if you're getting into like the, the mid 80s when I was getting into all that shit, I mean, I discovered, I mean, I got into, I smoked pot for the first time about 1982. I was 14. I had a friend that uh, lived in this apartment complex, and it was this guy, we called him John Wanker. He looked like Mick Jagger, and he used to deal <laughs> drugs, but he, he only dealt brown seed full uh, pot at the time, but I smoked a little bit of, of, of a joint one day and it made my eyes burn. I didn't laugh or any of that stuff. And I was like, this is, this kind of sucks, you know? So I kind of avoided it for a little while, not because I didn't want to do it or that I didn't want to do it, just because it didn't do anything for me when I got a hold of this shitty bunk brown dope, we'll call it, you know? But soon after that, I, I surely got my my taste of, uh, you know, Sensimilia Bud, and that, which went into awful shit for me, which almost killed me, like cocaine, PCP, LSD. I was big on that shit, and I did all that shit all the way up till 1987 when I almost fucking died, and I literally, I told this on our old deceased website uh, and everything, the stories of all that shit. I had to, I had to quit drugs, they killed me. Cocaine really had a latch on me, man, and, you know, I'm still hyper 52, you can imagine how hyper I was at 18, 19, and all that shit. You know, bouncing off the walls. I'd go, I'd go a week 
no sleep, and I never slowed down, man. And not to exaggerate or, or anything like that, I was smoking about an ounce of weed a day. I was about 28 grams a day because I would have different groups of people come. I'd have people skipping school in the morning, coming to my house, getting me high. I'd have people going on lunch, skipping stuff, going out on lunch, doing that shit. Then people leaving school early, we'd be getting high. They'd leave, we'd go do something, we'd go get high. They'd go home, I'd get the early evening crowd. I must have ran with like six groups of people that just wanted to always just stay fucking high and which turned me into like going down to those places like Anacostia and stuff where we discovered PCP and which they called it Love Boat and we just get fucking fried out of our minds and there's many times we could have been shot and killed when you know when you're talking about the violence part of it all there was many times that could have happened i mean mark from deceased one night we went down in there and i had a friend his name was deron and we went in there uh it was pouring i'll never forget it we were pouring rain and i said is there any fucking love in here tonight and the guy was like nope it's dry as shit he was cool as fuck we started to walk away and a guy with a, a spider web tattoo on his eye eye socket area fucking told Mark come with me I get you some fucking what you want and I told Mark I wouldn't go man I don't trust this motherfucker Mark said I'm gonna go I said well you're on your own man cause that, you're, that's stupid and he fucking went in there and we sat we went back to the car me and my buddy Dan we were waiting for him all of a sudden he came running out and here comes the fucking dude behind him and Mark's like that motherfucker's got a gun man he robbed me he you know, hit me over the fucking head with a gun and robbed me and we got in the fucking car and fucking, that, that could have been the end of us there. You know, the guy went about his way and didn't didn't kill us. But then a couple of days later, I think it, Mark, it was Mark showing me. He goes, look what, look down there where we were. It was called the waterfront. And he goes, look what happened down at waterfront. Well, they, they set four white kids on fire and burned them to death in a, in a, in a fucking trash can. That could have easily have been us. You're, you're talking, I was 16, 17 years old when all that shit was going on. Oh, my goodness. Wow. We wow. did a lot of we did a lot of that shit, man. And and outside of someone trying to kill us, the drugs we were taking were trying to kill us. I mean, a lot of that PCP wasn't really PCP. Sometimes you get embalming fluid, which they put in it. Sometimes you get black flag fucking, you know, roach killer. You never knew what you were putting in your system. And I remember many times taking a hit off that shit and going into I, I'm not a headache kind of guy and my whole life never had headaches. But boy, I get these fucking like brain pounding aneurysm near kind of feelings back then. And I was like, man, we don't know what the fuck we're putting in our system for life, you know? Wow. Yeah, dude. And that's that's interesting. And you're you're kind of bringing to mind, uh, you know, we talk about the early 80s. We talk about the kind of burnout culture, the heavy metal burnout culture. Uh, something I was going to ask you about when we got a little later on was, I don't know if you're familiar if, with the um, the Say You Love Satan murder of Long Island, uh, uh, Ricky I, Casso. Absolutely. Yeah, that, well, you know, that's we're actually about a town over from where that took place. We're on Long Island here, so it's like a local legend. We had uh, Jesse Pollock, the author who wrote the recent Acid King book. I don't know if you've read that book, but it kind of gives the real story. I haven't read it, but I, I, as, you, as you're telling me now, I'd love to read it. I love to read all that stuff. So yeah, I'll definitely I, get up on it. Yeah, highly I, recommended. Yeah, that, that. To, to put it shortly, Jesse Pollock kind of went back and redid um, the interviewing with a lot of the grown-ups, but the kids who were the people who were kids at that time and had grown up. Um, and the book, the actual book, I think it was "Say You Love Satan" from the '80s, really um, sensationalized everything. But what I'm getting at is this seems like it was not just isolated to that town in Northport or you and your friends. It seems like in the early 80s, there was a serious kind of burnout, almost nihilistic culture amongst the metalhead youth, man. You, can, can you speak to that? Is that true? I, I totally agree. I mean, I, I you know, I, I came from a good family. I can't say nothing. I was no weird, you know, sexual abuse or child abuse in my family. None of that stuff. My father died when I, when I was five years old. My dad died of cancer when he was 28. So I only had my mother, but my mother was a great, great woman and she took care of me. If anything, she was very lenient. She was very loose. I mean, 
I got kicked out of school. I was a straight-A student in school up till ninth grade, all the way up there. I, it was easy to me. You know, it was fucking easy. In ninth grade, uh, three months in, a fucking, this English teacher, her name was Mrs. Murtal. She fucking, I was sitting there reading my fucking Fangora magazine. I'll never forget that. Uh, uh, yes. cover with the head blown off off of it. Yep. And she looks at me and she goes, what the hell is this? And she was a real strict Italian woman, kind of woman. She took me in my, gro I'm growing my hair out hair I had at the time, she pulled me out of my desk chair, you know, speaking of how old I am, you know, the old desk chairs, and uh, I sat there, and she fucking pulled me out of it to the floor, and I was laying on the floor, like, what the fuck, and this lady's like, yeah, well, are you cheating, why do you always finish for the rest of the class, and I threw the fucking desk at her, but didn't hit her, hit the wall, tried to leave the school, the fucking truancy fucking people, or whoever the hell they were, came following me as I walked home, took me to the school, principal told me I was going to be expelled because of this, the next day my mother went up there, and my mother brought me home that day, and she looked at me, and she said, what do you want to do, I said, mom, I've learned everything I can learn in fucking school, this is fucking terrible, I don't want to do it, and at first she, she challenged me, she fought me on it, but then eventually she said, you know what, we have to figure out what you got to do to be able to drop out of school, so I went to the summer school, uh, I, I think that back I went to night school and fucking finished out what the judge told me I needed to do. I had to be 15 and a half years old to legally be able to drop out of school. And my mom let me drop out of school, which put me about 1983. And that would be, yeah, it would be about late 1983 is when I was out of school. And then, then it all happened to me. That's when I met all these figures and I had all this fucking free time. And, and I think that was a, a mom, my, my, my mom's first child. So it was her first time dealing with teen angst and all that kind of <laughs> shit. And I, and I fell right into it hook, line and sinker, man. I was fucking caught up. I had a Spanish friend whose uh, brother-in-law was the biggest, uh, he was from Ecuador. He was the biggest uh, cocaine dealer out of Virginia, out of Springfield. He's in jail now for life. He would give us free cocaine every fucking day. When I say he would probably give us about an eight ball a day. He'd probably give us, yeah, he'd give us about an eight ball a day. A Holy day free for, for the longest time. And Frankie would just show up and be like, here, man, have all you want. First time I ever did it, I even counted it out. So I was like, let's see how much cocaine I can do. Did 81 fucking lines the first time I ever did that shit. It was me and, was me and Frankie. We went till it was gone. Cause I, was, I heard stories how your heart will blow up. You'll die. I mean, you're, you're, you're talking yeah. to a kid of, I was 16 then. And that's what I started at. And then that's another problem with me. An extreme guy, you know, everything mm -hmm. had to be till it was gone. I had, well, we, I wasn't a drinker back then at all. I was like, I ain't drinking no fucking beer. Let's go get the fucking, you know, the fucking 190 proof green alcohol. Get me two of those motherfuckers, you know. Huh. I drank two. I drank. I chugged the bottle one night, not knowing how fucking hard shit that was. Fucking drank it. Felt good as fuck for ten minutes. Fucking had a second bottle. Started swigging on that, and they were like, "You're gonna die, dude. You're gonna alcohol poison and die." I remember running across the street at a gas station fucking passing out behind the gas station and the fucking used tires i was there for about 40 hours past that it was a friday night i woke up it was sunday afternoon my friends had lost me there they didn't leave me there they lost me they didn't know where the fuck i went i was ended up fucking passed out in tires so i pushed everything so i, I it was easy prey like you're saying with all this stuff i was definitely hook on and thinker pushed right into all that shit Wow, man, that is wild. Thank God you're still with us to talk about it. I know. I'm just, that's it all in the book, man. It had yeah. to be in the book. Yeah. You know, writing yeah. the book, I started feeling all that, man. When I would do, when I would tell acid stories, no joke, I'd feel like I was tripping again. When I was telling, like, my mother's death and shit, I'd get all sad. When I, you know, lots of pussy as a teenager, I was getting real happy, you know. Whatever the fucking you know, part of the book it was, I was just, like, reliving it, man. It's crazy. Oh, man, you got to reprint these books. I got to read this. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Killing me, man. I was trying to get the book leading up to this interview, and I couldn't find it for, you know, for less than some exorbitant price 
on uh, eBay or whatever. You know, you, you can, but yeah, I man, you got to re- get that book reprinted. Maybe maybe some publisher will hear this interview. Um, that's crazy, King. Uh, and and, and um, you know, you, you talk about uh, all this wild stuff growing up, and and you know, we kind of got into the satanic of panic while we're, while we're there in the eighties. Um, you know, the Ricky Castle thing fed into the satanic panic. Uh, and I, I noticed, like, Deceased, um, the evil side of religion demo comes out in 86. If I'm not mistaken, doesn't that plant you, like, right in the in the middle of the satanic panic uh, as, as an underground metal musician in the 80s? I would, I would say so. I would say so. And, you know, not to play much on that, de- that demo title, I don't know where that, to this day, people laugh. And, I, you know, I always came up with every song title we ever had, every demo title, every album title is me. I don't know where the fuck the evil side of religion came from. That's the only thing. I have no clue why we went there. I do know when we first started the band that we didn't have a direction. We didn't know if we wanted to. We, you know, we were really into, of course, Slayer. We were really into Merciful Fate. We were into Voivod. The bands of the time, Sodom. And we still had our Priest Maiden and Sabbath love, too. And we just kind of didn't know where we were going to go. And the very first song we ever wrote, we weren't even called Deceased yet, was called Death of Christ. Mm-hmm. And... It was just me and Doug. I was I was still playing bass then and singing, and he was on guitar. It was just us in his apartment. So we kind of went that route, and I guess I sort of had some ideas in there. I didn't look at it as, it, like, you know, nowadays you'd see, like, as we know, you get your black metal, you get your death metal. They're pretty separated as far as genre. Like, it's like they, they're more Satanist. Most death metal doesn't go to the Satan path at all, as you know, mm-hmm. these days. With lyrics or any of that kind of stuff, it's kind of, it's very little touched on. And um, I don't know where that came from, but it was definitely right there in the Satanic Panic for sure. 1986 was heavy on that shit. Did Did you ever encounter anything like we like we hear about, like church groups protesting your concert, people calling you out in public for wearing a heavy metal T-shirt, uh, people in your neighborhood maybe or your local community giving you a hard time? A, li- a little later on, you're gonna go to gotta go to ninety. We went and played a, a Michigan uh, Michigan Death Fest. And we went there. There was a there was a uh, big Christian group there, picketing the whole show. They came up to me asking questions. Morbid Angel played. Sacrifice was there. They were calling out all the names wow. of the band. And they came to me and they were asking me, you know, about you know, the devil and all this shit. And I, and I was just telling them straight up. I was like, look, if we have a song about the devil, it's a song about the devil. I don't preach this shit. I don't have no religion. I don't go God. I don't go Satan. I said, I just do what I do. I said, I, and I compared it to Max von Sandow in The Exorcist. I said, he made a movie with the devil in it. You think he's a Satanist because he made a movie with the devil in it? And, I, and they, didn't, they didn't end up broadcasting me on the news because I, what I heard was that I was being too intelligent <laughs> in my responses for them. So they took Morbid Angel and Trey Azagoth and people like that that were like, yeah, fuck Jesus Christ, up the ass and all this kind of shit. They, you know, they went, as you said, you know, they, they fucking, they, they, they they superimpose it as fucking you know so over the top when half that shit's just is made up or for fucking shock value as you know yeah and it's interesting you bring up that michigan death fest that was um uh it's available there's clips of a lot of that original news footage available on youtube i've watched it of people protesting the michigan death fest the bands being interviewed it was a very controversial thing in that town back in the day Oh, it was very, we, we showed up and I was like, man, there's a lot of motherfuckers here. And it was in a <laughs> hockey arena. And it was our it was our first festival we ever played outside of our area. I mean, we got in a van and drove to Michigan, you know, whatever that was, 10 hours. Huh. And uh, we got there and I, there was a long line to get in of people that I was like, these motherfuckers don't seem to fit in. And then all of a sudden we started seeing the crosses and shit. And I'd only seen that at, you know, Black Sabbath, Ozzy, Judas Priest concerts at the big arenas up till then. It was insane. Wow, man. Yeah. So, all right. So... Um, I mean, you talked about arenas and concerts. That's a good segue. 
Uh, you know, we talked about the satanic panic. We talked about drugs, violence. Uh, let's talk about something a little bit more fun for a few minutes. I know, um, actually from an interview I was watching earlier today, you professed that at the height of your tape trading, you had like 10,000 plus tapes, including uh, alleged live bootlegs. I did. I, I had so many fucking tapes. Again, just like I said with the drinking and everything else, everything had to be extreme with me. Once I start collecting, I'm out of control, man. I was fucking, it literally started with a buddy named Jim Powell. He fucking sent me a list. I said, well, I don't have anything to trade you. He said, well, you can buy. And I bought five tapes from there. They were $7 each, TDK, 90 minutes, fill them up. And the first, I remember the first tapes I ever got. I got a fucking a Slayer live tape where they had Necrophiliac, one of the first times they'd ever played it live. So it was like a new Slayer song, gotta have it. Picked up like an Overkill live tape. Then he started giving me demos like Iron Angel uh, was in there and some other kind and some other shit. I got it from him. And that was like the first five tapes. And then I was like, okay, now I got five tapes. Then I started sending ta uh, pen pal letters to everybody. Let's trade, let's trade. And nobody at the time, this was great. Nobody at the time had that Slayer song. So that tape worked to my advantage to get me up to 30, 40, 50 tapes. Now I got 50 tapes. And I'm trying to get as much on those tapes as I can. I'm not trying to fill it up with an 80 minute live show of Overkill. I'm trying to get like 10 demos, you know, 10, 10 minute demos of different bands. And then it just took off. And then once deceased, fucking uh, put our first demo out we gave it out for free and that was our way because at the time people were selling their demo tapes for like eight dollars for two song demos and i was like this is fucking lame so our idea was let's send it for free now we didn't have any money no nobody in deceased was rich in any way how we did that was we all went out and especially me and the guitar player and we fucking went out and stole blank tapes uh, mania it was, it was people's drug which is known as cvs these days we must have stole at least three thousand tapes Allegedly. and that is no exaggeration we went everywhere and took every fucking one of them we took them in our leather jackets take them home and boom box it up and the way we got the tapes around was my mom uh worked at an electric company she would bring me home rolls and rolls of stamps and back Allegedly. then you could put a demo tape cover in it without the case and a cassette for literally about i think it was about 29 cents back then to send yeah. that shit out maybe maybe two stamps but it was like literally 60 cents and i was sending them out all you had to do was write and then after a while my mom was like i'm out of stamps so we started saying just send a self-addressed stamped envelope and we'll send you the demo so that got us going and then amongst that people were like oh that's cool as shit let me send you my demo tape so i probably got at least 500 more demo originals there and then i started you know just getting more and more and by the time it was say 89 90 i know for, i know for a fact i had at least 10,000 tapes, and probably more. Now, I can't rival that, but <laughs> I've, I got into, I'm 38, I got into the whole tape trading thing in like the mid-90s, mid to late 90s, until, you know, everything went internet, kind of, and I still keep up a collection today, um, but did you ever get to a, because I, I got to a point in my 20s where it was totally disorganized, I didn't, you know, I, wa I wasn't responsible enough to get the proper shelving and boxes, and I've kind of since done that in my 30s now did you go through a period like that where you were like this is crazy i gotta organize this yeah to a degree yeah but but i sort of I, you know again being a hyper guy i had a lot of energy all day long and you know and i really wasn't home a lot i was always run 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 but when i was home i was taking care of my collection same with my record collection i mean i started off with nothing i you know I, my first record was kiss rock and roll over i bought that at fucking on tape even i didn't even buy it on vinyl because it, I, my needle didn't work on my record so that was my first record about 70 
I guess it was about 77 when my mom took me to Montgomery Wards. And then from there, I started buying my records. And I probably had like 30, 40 records going into the early 80s. It was everything from Rush to Sandy Hager to fucking Ozzy, though, that shit of the time. And then I, my first two underground records were basically, I think it was Heavy Metal Maniac and Acid's first record. I went down to Georgetown on a moped and bought those. And I got lucky because there was a, there was a, a show called Midnight Monday Metal in DC 101 in our, uh, DC, in our Washington, D.C. area radio station. And every Monday night at midnight, they would play entire records, side one and side two of then unknown bands. And that's where I discovered Man of War, Battle Hymns, Motley Crue, Too Fast for Love, Under the Blade, Twisted Sister, The Rods, Vandenberg, Triumph, Def Leppard, all the way to lesser known shit like Tank, Baron Rojo from Spain. I mean, we got all this shit, Y&T, Sound Barrier. So I started taping these, then buying those records. And literally at, at my highest record peak, uh, which I would say was probably me when I moved to my house in 2004. I had about 18,000 LPs. Jesus. It was oh because, I mean, we'd sit here for hours just getting through all that. But I mean, yeah. literally, as I went on and became in a band, like we'd go to relapse and we'd get all the latest promo vinyls yeah. or got, I got in with Nuclear Blast. They'd send me shit or uh, Road Racer or Road Runner. And, and when we were in our terrible teens, man, there was there was many times we'd walk into a place called Waxy Maxies and I remember one day we walked out with 165 albums unpaid oh, <laughs> we, just, we literally got them to the hallway I remember putting them in the we put them in the Who section which was right by the front door we asked the lady hey you got the new Nintendo uh, game she said I got a system in the back she walked to the back we fucking ran out of there with everything I remember the sign of evil was in there bulldozer blessed death all that shit we didn't have the money man we, we, we were fucking we were we were in full on I don't we got a we can't buy it we gotta have it I'm taking it I'm stealing it man and that went on for years that went on that literally honestly and truly went on until I was almost 30 man well allegedly we got we got to put the allegedly on this whole interview King this is crazy straight up man, <laughs> oh, man. that's how you download vinyl that's yeah what, that's yeah that's, that was downloading, downloading kids you used to have to that's put some did. sweat into yeah, it I mean fucking one record back then was like 1088 or something my mom yeah. might give you a $10 bill to get me through the weekend and I was trying to you know pay for my food or my fucking the pot I didn't have luckily like huh. I said you know I had so many friends with weed and fucking and cocaine and all that shit didn't really need that but I mostly needed gas to get to those places to get it from my pal mm. but didn't have the money for it you know sure I paid for plenty of records too along the way but that and then and then trading and then once I started my old metal records thing I dealt with Hellion Records in Germany and that guy has every fucking thing under the sun and I know me and him did at least a five to six to seven thousand uh piece trade over the, the five year period of probably 97 to 2002 so I was even getting records then that weren't even available in America because the vinyl was dead I'd get all the latest motorheads and I'd get just shit you couldn't find it was so limited I remember getting the X Factor from him Iron Maiden which we couldn't even find a copy in Virginia anywhere not even one copy and he sent me two so I just got lucky as far as that goes I, I mean honest with you now dude I, I most of the 2000 or like 2005 2010 I basically lived off selling off some of those records. Well, a lot of those records. I did a count uh, last year. I, I think I still have 2,350 records in vinyl. And almost every one of those is very rare print. You're not going to find Sabbath or Maiden or Kiss or, you know, what I call, you know, just generics in there. You're going to yeah. find like very rare private press stuff that's worth like $1,000 a pop. Wow. Stuff that's either not on CD or it's just means the world to me you know like just yeah. rare shit that's what i've captured because yeah. i've either got it on cd or i went you know what 
This record here, a uh, perfect example, a band called Paradox from the United States had the guitar player from Man of War in it. And fucking, it was $1,100. I paid $1.99 for it in Georgetown. Uh, that offered me $1,100 for it. I mean, I what do you do? What do you it, do? Yeah. It's a free song EP. Do you, do you keep the record? That's not even very good. <laughs> or do you sell it? And I sold it. It paid my rent for a month. Yeah, dude, times are tough, man. You know, not, not every I'm record collector... Tough is a rich kid. You know what I mean? Some of us are just in, yeah, in it for dude, the Dude, that's all I see now. People buying records and you, and you see them and they're like, look at my record collection. You're like, dude, none of these records are even open. You're like, oh, you know, it's like Spinal Tap. Oh, this can never be played. This can never be, <laughs> don't even look at it. You know, yeah, I'm like, what You don't have a fuck, record collection. Dude? You have an exhibit. You have a museum. You know, it's, it's not a record gold collection. Goldmine Records. Uh, Goldmine, Goldmine did an interview with me on my record collection and they asked him that because the guy came to my house, one of the guys, and he asked me why I didn't keep all my records in Poly. And I said, nah, man, this ain't fine China. This is fucking heavy metal here, dude. My records age with me. They rage, they age with me. And he's like, oh, but what about this? And I said, dude, there's plenty of people I know that got all their shit in polys and they're beautiful and you get their fucking, you know, it, it, it is what it is. It's their Tupperware. But for me, I play my records and I, I, you know, I don't scratch them or spit on them or piss on them, but I sure as fuck don't like put them up on the wall like an Elvis fucking plate, you know, you bought a fucking wine, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I can appreciate that too, man. As a, as a collector myself, man. Um, wow, and, and you know, I don't want to. There was something that caught my attention too that I heard you say previously. Uh, and while we, you know, you mentioned the evil side of religion demo and recording that and getting into the tape trading thing, is it true that you recorded that on uh, an eight track of which only seven tracks worked properly in an attic for a case of beer with with a piece of tin foil on the snare drum? The tinfoil came in after song four. The first three songs it worked, and the piece snapped. We had no money, so I took a piece of aluminum foil from the guy's house and put it underneath to get a little bit of a snap to it, a little bit of, you know, a rat tat. Yes. Uh, yep, it was 20 bucks in a case of beer. It was a guy named Brian Anderson who played, he actually went on to sing for a little while for a band called Wreckage, which put out some demos from Virginia. He uh, came over. We, were, we, we had been rehearsing at this guy's house, John Reed, in his attic, uh, for months and we just said let's record this motherfucker so we did that but we did it all instrumental leads were done live right there on the spot uh i remember some of the microphones were actually taped to the um hardware of the drums so there was actually a couple kickbacks where the microphone the snare the, the cymbal would get hit and the fucking mic would get boop, boop, you'd hear a pop because it would you know shake the mic and it stayed on there then i took the instrumental home to my stereo which was this fucking panasonic platinum boom box i had and I put my fucking vocals over it. I ran them through a fucking, I ran my vocals through a delay pedal, a boss delay pedal to get my, my echo. And I just fucking screamed. And I remember that's the only recording that exists of the cease where I was actually on drugs. The only one. And I remember my mom coming upstairs and I had the headphones on. And my mom came upstairs and she was banging on the door and I was screaming. And then I took the headphones off. What, mom? What's up? And she goes, are you okay? I said, yeah, I'm just screaming death metal. And she fucking laughed at me. She's like rolled her eyes and laughed. And that was it. Yeah, that was it. The evil side of fucking religion was done, man. All right, man. Wow, that is that is a cool story, man. I, I just thought that was great speaking to that DIY um, essence. And 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 while we're still in the '80s, here's a question I wanted to get by because the next demo, if I got it right, is '88's "Birth by Radiation." Um, and then you have "One Night in the Cemetery" in '89, and then again in '89, "Nuclear Exorcist." Now, yeah, "One Night in the Cemetery" was a live tape. "Nuclear Exorcist" was the third studio tape. Correct. That was '89. Got you. Okay, so because what I'm getting at here is you got birth by radiation, nuclear exorcist, uh, that that um, kind of Cold War nuclear fear of the '80s. Um, can you? Because because you know I was a kid in the '80s. Maybe you could take us through what what that what it was like 
how did that because obviously you're not the only metal band to have referenced that i guess in the 80s lyrically and things like that could you speak to that a little Sure. I mean, what I wanted to do, like I said, with Evil Side of Religion, we were directionless. We were writing about, the first demo was Gut Wrench, which was about grave robbing. After the bloodshed, did have that end of the world. Fucking, this is what, you know, where will we be after the bloodshed? Eaten by disease, told the tale of, you know, the fucking cancers of the world and stuff like that. So I wasn't touching on anything outside of the norm when it came to that. With the second tape, which was originally, okay, in 87 is when I took sick from drugs. I quit all drugs. That's what I was telling you earlier. I was 19. I quit drugs. Cocaine almost killed me. I went through anxiety attacks, panic attacks. I took 10 months off. I lived in the fucking my house. My mother saved my fucking life. My family saved my life. I went cold turkey, and that was the end of that. So that's why there's nothing in 87. In 88, now this is crazy. This is a little side thing, but it gets you all to where you want to be. In 88, we returned, okay? It was fucking March of 88. My mom bought me a drum set for fucking getting through drugs, and she said, you know, I want your fucking band to do what you do. Get your fucking head on straight now. She had told me when I quit drugs, I've told you and told you, quit fucking drugs, but I knew you never would stop until you were ready to. She said, I wasn't going to talk till I was blue in the face. She said, I heard you every fucking day with that bong and, you know, these fucking girls coming and going and snorting cocaine and all this shit. You know, I had done my time. So basically, we got back that day, and me... And Doug and Mark, which were the two guitar players, got together and jammed. And all of a sudden, I was way better on drums than I was 10 months ago when I before I quit drugs. And fucking everybody was like, whoa, this is nuts. And we called up Rob, our bass player, who had to go to college that day. He couldn't come to practice. And he said, fucking tomorrow we fucking jam, man. And I said, fucking killer. Well, that fucking night, fucking they said, let's go out and, and celebrate. I said, man, I am beat down, dude. I just played drums for six hours. Another thing that happened when I quit drugs was I, I went down to 144 pounds, dude. I was, I'm a big boy these days, but I was about 180 then. I had lost about 40 pounds from not eating, just weirding it out. So I was beat down. My energy level wasn't there, but I was so excited that we had practiced. Well, they got together. They told Mark, we'll come out and get you, man, because Mark had to have dinner with a friend. And then they said, we'll meet you. We'll go to Rob's and we'll go drinking. Well, Mark missed them because Mark hadn't come home yet. They went by Mark's. On their way to Rob's house, a fucking, it was a, it was a flat tire. And a fucking van came and killed everybody except for fucking Doug and uh, this guy, Sean. So it was insane. It was a fucking hit and run. Doug lost his brother. Uh, his brother was his brother was thrown 100 fucking feet in the air and killed. Our friend Larry was killed. His head was turned around backwards like the fucking exorcist. And Rob, our bass player, was killed. And Rob was a big boy. And they, they what I heard from Mark, who went there and witnessed it all, sadly, is that, that they must have thrown this guy to a football field. That's how far they, they, they killed him. So immediately we were in this fucking death dirge, man. I mean, you talk about coming back as a year coming back from drugs, and this happens. And it just fucked us all up. So that was that was living in our minds, man. That was living in our minds. That's where we were. We were so dark and depressed and fucking like, man, we're never going to get out of this funk. King gets fucking sick from drugs. Rob gets killed. And then the second demo was originally going to be called Yuck, Y-U-K. It was just going to be fucking crazy songs with no direction again. I think we, I remember having a song called fucking uh, Mangled Retard was one of the songs. How fucking stupid is that? That's the truth. That's one of the, and we had a song called Hideous Grotesque Abortion. Those were songs like we, I, we had no direction. We didn't know where we were going to go. So I came up with a concept idea. I said, I'm going to write this story about fucking, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to put my symbol of God. Cause I'm, again, I'm not a God guy. I'm going to have this symbol for God that, you know, sees all the, the fucking things wrong in the world. And he's going to cleanse the earth with an exorcism. And he's going to do it through fucking chemical poisoning, which at the time was very popular. I think we had, uh, 
I don't know when Four Mile Island and all that Three Mile Island, whatever the fuck island it was, was going on. But there was lots of that spill and weird shit that I barely see on TV because, again, I wasn't a TV guy. I wasn't fucked up and all this. And I just sort of put that in there. And that's kind of where that Cold War and all that shit, you know, Russia's going to kill us and all that kind of stuff. It must have been creeping into my mind. And so I made this story. And with it, I brought in my fucking horror tales of my, you know, my, what I call my Romero-esque ideas of zombies and all that shit too so it just started building and that's what birth by radiation became in in, 80, in 88 and so we did that and then i said well, what about the next demo the next demo is the continuation of this it's going to be a storyline and it was an idea we had up until we did the album luck of the corpse where we were just going to keep continuing this story as our career went on we just continue to tell the story and then after i'd done two demos i was like i don't have nowhere else to take this fucking story I'll, maybe I'll come back to it one day. So that's that's how that all came about, those demos. And that's where that dreary fucking, uh, all that dreariness came from. And if anything good came from that fucking accident, it's, it was just the fucking, the, the, the spirit of, of our, our friends to just go on for them and for us. And, you know, we're going to fucking beat the system. We're going to beat the fucking, you know, the, the shit in the world. And honestly and truly, that's where the name Luck of the Corpse comes from. Because we used to call it, we've got the Luck of the Corpse, man. Wow. Okay, that's a lot right there. Um, and rest in peace to your friends uh, and former bandmates. And and you talked about um, Doug. It's Doug Souther, right? Yeah. Yeah, you talk about Doug Souther losing his brother in that accident. Um, and I believe Luck of the Corpse was his last recording with the band, right? Yes, it was his only record he played on was the first one. Yeah, Luck of the Corpse. Yeah, and that was kind of like infamously um, your first album with Relapse Records and Relapse Records' first release as a, a more humble um, upcoming label at the time. Uh, and and I, what, I, what I wanted to ask you, though, I understand that you guys, even at that point when Relapse was a young label, you signed an eight-album deal and you ended up financing the album yourself. Man, I, you know, truthfully... When we, we, we never cared about getting on a record label. We actually recorded a fourth demo, uh, which had no name. It was just for us of five new songs that we'd done. A couple ended up on Luck of the Corpse, and we didn't care. And then a guy named Slatko Dalek out of Germany, who was doing a subsidiary of Nuclear Blast, got in touch with me, and he had a label called Gore Records. He wanted to do a seven-inch with us. And I told the guys, and everybody but Doug was pretty gung-ho to do it. Doug's like, no, nah, no, nah, we got to have money. We got to have money. We got to have money. I was like... Dude, we're an underground band. We got song titles like Sweet Feasting on Skulls and Shoots on the Hearse. There ain't no money in this, dude. And he wanted to hold out. Well, this guy, Slacko Dalek, ended up dying. He, he died fucking suddenly, too. So, again, luck of the corpse. So, I was friends with this guy named Matt Jacobson. He lived over in Colorado. And he used to send me deceased homemade stickers from Kinko's and those kind of places. He'd send me this stuff. I love deceased, man. One day I'm going to start a label. I'm going to sign you. You'll see it. Well, he tells me I'm going to do Relapse Records. And he actually, they did a seven inch by a band called Velcro Overdose. I think that was their very first release, kind of a crossover thing. And he sent it to me. He goes, this is it. I'm, I'm working my way up to full albums and stuff. Would you be interested? And I told the guys. And on Relapse's end and on our end, nobody knew what the fuck we were getting into. Eight album deal killer means we'll be able to put out eight albums on Relapse. We're fucking, what are we then, 20, 21 years old? We don't know what the fuck we're signing our, away with these fucking people. But yeah. 
Matt ended up coming to the East Coast in Pennsylvania. We met up with Bill Yurkovich, and they started relapsing. We went up and saw him. We met him at the house. We shook hands. We signed the contract, and away we go. Well, soon after, they're like, well, we don't have enough money to record your album, but if you want to record your album, then you know we'll fucking we'll reimburse you. So we're like, okay, and Doug the whole time is like, no way, man, this is fucked up. If we're going to put our own record out, we just need to put our own record out. And we're just like, no, 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 we don't know distribution and all this. And we're, we're fighting over that, which helped to lead Doug to lead the band, truthfully. But we're fighting over that. We record the album. And then we give it to them. And then they're like, well, we still don't have enough money to press the CDs for this. Vinyl's dead. we got to do CDs. And, you know, I said, well, what, what's going to go on? He goes, well, we're going to take a track from it. And we're going to put it out as a seven inch. <laughs> and I said, okay. And they're like, that's to make the money to put out the CD. And then Doug quit. And when Doug quit, I, we were like, well, I don't know what's going on with the record now because Doug didn't even want us to use his shit on the record anymore. So we were in this, especially me and Doug were really in a big freak out, you know, almost the fisticuffs there. But we ended up taking a demo track, Planet Graveyard, that we had remixed for a compilation called Death is, uh, what was it called? I, uh, Give Me Liberty or Give Me Death which was going to come out on um, the important label with bands like Immolation and Primeval, the bands of the day. And that didn't happen. Again, a luck of the corpse move. And uh, so we took that remix version of Planet Graveyard from Nuclear Exorcist, took two live tracks from the B-side, for the B-side, and we put this out. And that had to go through two presses before they had enough money to put the CD out. Well, then the CD comes out, and we don't even get a copy from the fucking label. Nothing. And I was like, man, this, oh, man, Doug might have been right. This is fucked up. And so, fuck it, we went down to Florida and played some shows down there with, um, we actually played a show with Atheist down there and another band called Burial and Pain Eater. We went down there and there was a place called Aces Records. And we went in there and there was our fucking CD. We'd never even seen it. And it, was, it wasn't even in a long box. They'd already started get, doing away with the long boxes. And it was just in one of those plastic traps where you had the cover and that had just opened. They had four, co they had four copies. So we fucking bought the four copies for us. That was it. And we went back and then relapse was like, oh, yeah, yeah. And eventually we got a few copies. And I was like, man, this is fucking weird, man. This is weird. And then Nuclear Blast decided to put out the vinyl. And when they put out the vinyl, we didn't even get a copy of the vinyl. We went to play a show in fucking Rhode Island with Impetigo. And I think it was um, Vital Remain, some other bands like that, Slim. And a distributor was sitting there with fucking the vinyl. He had eight copies of Luck of the Corpse on vinyl. We bought all eight copies oh, of God. our own record then. We didn't get, so we didn't get, we never got shit for that. And then honestly and truly, we paid about, we paid about $2,400 to record that Luck of the Corpse, okay? We did, we did fucking middle of the night graveyard shift. Mark was doing internship at this fucking uh, studio. We got a deal, $2,400. It was, it was fucking, you know, it was real tape and all that stuff back then. So there was a lot of money into the fucking reels. And, we never even got reimbursed for the for the month recording. To this day, we never got back. I think we got literally got one check for like one hundred and forty five dollars. That's it. <laughs> Jeez, man! Wow. So so. Well, despite all that, you continued to work with Relapse to put out albums through the nineties. I guess when you have a contract, you kind of either you have to because hiring a lawyer and getting into the legalities could be more expensive than than anything. The, the way I looked at it, real quick. The way I looked at it was okay. Look, they're starting out. We're starting out. We're all learning as we grow. That's strike one. We'll, we'll, we'll go by it. So, you know, we've got Mike Smith took Doug's place. We, they want us to rush in and do another record because by the time Luck of the Corpse came out, the recording was over a year old. It took them like about 14 months to get the record out. We'd already moved on and written other songs with uh, Mike. So 
So we had 13 Frightened Souls, which was the name of the EP, and Robotic Village were two new songs. We decided to do a cover of Voivod, one of our favorite bands, and then we redid two old tunes from the demos so people could see what Mike was about. And they got behind that. They had, they pushed it. They got it. I mean, I remember it was on MTV, Headbangers Ball. That Lon Friend guy was talking about it, holding up the CD. So I was like, okay, here we go. Now they're rolling. They got Amorphous. Now they got an Incantation. They got Mortician. Here they go. We're starting to roll. And we were seeing results. And I was like, you know, it's going to be a slow process. And in their, and I don't like to defend Relapse, trust me. <laughs> but in their defense, we weren't doing a lot of shows. We weren't touring. We weren't touring. You know, a couple guys, Mark and Mike mainly, had jobs they couldn't go we had to be weekend warriors and just play as far as three days could take us well, how far we could get somewhere after friday's work we could go to like north carolina or delaware or new york or new jersey that's about as far as we could go so their their promo was about as much as they could do for us and us getting out and getting in everybody's faces was very limited so that's where we kind of stood at that point okay all right and uh you know you mentioned 13 frightened souls and then, um, it, starting in '95, you guys have um, like a pretty, uh, pretty frequent run. You have Blueprints for Madness '95, uh, Fearless Undead Machines '97, Supernatural Addiction '2000. So you have a pretty uh, consistent run. Like every two years, there's an album coming out through the '90s. And what I wanted to ask you, because you, you, you know, you've talked about those albums in other interviews a lot. Um, getting into that era, the mid to late '90s. Death metal seems to take a turn for the more brutal, the more guttural. Nobody is pronouncing the lyrics anymore. Um, it's very groove-oriented and kind of getting more into, like, your dying fetus, your, uh, like, what internal bleeding and suffocation started. Uh, did you find that that um, it was harder to push the deceased sound to the more brutal audience in the late 90s? That's one of Relapse's uh, woes to us was always, we don't know how to market you. I mean, I remember when they put out 13 Frightened Souls, Grind was in, you know, it was Napalm Death Time and Carcass and all that shit was in. They, they put on the thing, lucidly grinding record, you know. We weren't grind, we were, we were us, dude. When I grew up, Surf and Goal was death metal. I remember people calling Metal Church first record death metal. To me, that was, I mean, to this day, I would say Sign of the Southern Cross by Black Sabbath is more death metal than obituary to me. Now, because all this Gurr stuff came later on, you know, yeah. this, this shit. I mean, I was screaming and all this shit, and, I, you know, we, we grew up on Repulsion and Master and those kind of bands. That was our early stuff and things like that. But we were also influenced by just straight-up thrash with Flash, Power, and Pain being a perfect example. So we weren't all that. We also were influenced by hardcore, English Dogs, early DRI. That was important to us, too. So when people said that, I was just like, look, Deceased just plays death metal from the grave, whatever that is. And when it became over and over, you know, the, the, the stalling car, I'll call it tonight, the stalling car, <laughs> fucking, it just, to me, it, you know, teach their own, do what you do, but it did, didn't do much for me. And yes, we were very different because I remember in Blueprints for Madness, if I was to say what was our most death metal, you know, Typical to most people's death metal would be probably Blueprints for Madness because it has a lower guttural vocal for the most part. Some of it. There's high screams too, but it's got that lower kind of uh, sound of the times and it wasn't done anything just how it came out. But when we got to Fearless, I can tell you this. Mike Smith told me the first song we wrote was The Silent Creature and he told me, dude, I'm writing what I write, dude. I'm not writing to any fucking genre. I'm not trying to fucking out brutal anybody. What comes out, comes out. And the first riff he came out with was like Wasted Years Iron Maiden. 
And I was yes. like, dude, that's all I want to do, dude. If it's heavy, if it's fucking heavy metal, it's heavy fucking metal. As I said, man, fucking merciful fate is just as fucking, you know, just as cool as this shit these motherfuckers are out now. And we weren't trying to be nowhere but ourselves. And I think what really pushed us in an even more heavy metal direction then was heavy metal. Those two words were bad words in the world. Yes. Metallica. I mean, I'm not a Metallica guy, but they weren't calling themselves a rock band then. Anthrax said they weren't metal. All these fucking bands that were big bands. I'm not the bands I was listening to, but just on the thing. All of a sudden, it was a bad word. All these people were trying to fit in with the grunge and all that kind of shit. And I was just like, fuck these motherfucking pussies, you know? Fuck all these fake bands. They all changed. They all of a sudden were staring at their shoes. Woe is me, all this shit. You're like, man, what a bunch of crock of shit. So when we did Fearless Undead Machines, I remember putting on it no grunge, no Pantera beards. No, just death metal from the grave and that was the sticker I wanted to go on the CD because they asked me well, we want to put a sales sticker so that's what I wrote them they wrote back no fucking way dude no way and by now relapse uh, had become this we're following what's where the green is at we're got a pie chart we got graphs all this kind of shit and I was like you gotta be kidding me and it got to the point then with relapse that they were editing our fucking thanks list and fuck off list they were taking off names of people that they didn't like, and they were leaving on things that we, like, we had a fuck off Morbid Angel, you fucking rock star dick, something like that. They took it <laughs> off. They said, dude, we got bands playing with Morbid Angel. You can't put that on your record. I'm like, I thought we were signed to a fucking underground label where we could say what we feel, dude. If it wasn't real, we wouldn't put it. We've had fucking issues with these fucking clowns for fucking a good fucking time now. So fucking more of that was coming with Relapse, and then they were just... You know, we're not on tour. They're like, man, it's a great fucking record. And then it got on top 10. That that record, Fearless, got on a lot of top 10 uh, lists of the year. Metal Maniacs loved it. I think it was like top seven, number seven of the year album for them, which was, you know, the not to me. I mean, I liked it. I liked the people, but not, it was the Bible to a lot of people of what, what's cool and what's not. And they were like, man, you got to, you, you know, this is cool. We got to get you out. And I remember them telling me, and I'm going to chuckle again when I tell you this, Matt on the phone going, dude, we're going to get you on tour with fucking Iron Maiden. Oh my God, I laughed. I was like, you're not going to do anything. And they didn't yeah. do anything. <laughs> that would have been amazing. Well, you know, you brought it right back to Iron Maiden there. And I appreciate that you mentioned that the first riff on Fearless Undead Machines has a similarity to Wasted Years by Iron Maiden. Uh, that's the first Absolutely. thing that struck me about it back in the day. I, you know, I... I, I'm a little bit younger, but I got into Iron Maiden before I got into all the extreme stuff. I have a lifelong love affair with Iron Maiden's music, seen them live, all that sort of thing. Uh, and I and and something I've said before to people is uh, for years, deceased is the Iron Maiden of death metal. That drama is there, uh, the epic quality is there, the melodic musicality is there, but it is it is death metal through that Iron Maiden classic. Uh, heavy metal kind of perspective and I feel like in the late 90s everybody was falling over themselves to get to the breakdown and the and the and the hardcore influenced um, kind of metalcore stuff that was going on yep. that you're, you're right metal became like a four little four letter word everything had to be core you know Hey, I wasn't a part of it. Hey, that's the nicest thing you could ever tell me, man. Iron Maiden's my favorite band of all time, so we're Hell right yeah. there, brother. <laughs> <laughs> Hell yeah. Yeah, and, and it's and it's great, though, because now you can go back through the catalog, the deceased catalog, and, you know, you guys never had uh, the new metal album. You never had the industrial oh, album. No. Oh, you know? no. Oh, it's... when we were playing shows, I would say, ain't no fucking techno remix. 
Ain't no fucking yo boy fucking breakdown shit. It's just fucking death metal from the grave. And if people had death metal at that time was Dismember and Tomb, the Year 8 catalog, so be it. We were still, we weren't going to give up what we called it from the fucking day one just because it was something different to a lot of people. It's not my thing. I wish all those bands the best. Cannibal Corpse are buddies of mine. All those bands, I wish them the best. What they do is what they do, man. But it's just not what we do. But to like, you know, drop us outside X, I mean, he's saying death metal. I would, I would gladly put our lyrics, our fucking eeriness of our tunes in there with anybody because to me, ain't death metal. It ain't nothing about it that makes me, it doesn't, it doesn't haunt me. It doesn't make me want to hear it again. It doesn't fucking embed in my mind like a fucking nightmare. It doesn't do that. And that's what we try. And I'm not going to say we succeed or anything because I'm not going to suck my own dick here. I'm 52 and got a bad back. But fucking, <laughs> but fucking what I'm trying to say is we give it our fucking all to have that eeriness to us, man. We definitely try to be as creepy as we can fucking be and still be fucking fast and still be melodic and all this stuff. I don't want to write shitty, boring songs. I don't want to write what I call rent records. We don't just throw riffs together and put albums out every year. That's why now it takes five, six, seven years for deceased records. I mean, we're fucking, we're almost all 50. Well, some of us are. I'm 52. Mike's 53. Fucking some of the guys are late, you know, our late forties too. We've got we've got birth, we've got death, we've got divorces, we got mortgages, we got fucking everything, and we and we make time for it all. You don't just throw the shit out there because then you become this band that it needs to be pretty good. Now their records suck. You know, I don't want to be that band. I just I, I, I have too much respect for what we do, and I have just I'm too passionate about properly arranged music under something I'm a part of. Because when I put my name to something, you're going to get 110%, whether I'm 10 years old or 52 years old, man. Hell, hell yeah, man. And 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 on that note of um, metal being less popular in the late 90s into the 2000s, you kind of doubled down on it um, by releasing more music, not only with Deceased, but with October 31st, uh, a band that's very relevant for this interview because we're going to drop it Halloween weekend, uh, and something I don't want to get through the whole interview without even bringing up. Um, so well, I'm going to, I'm going to say this just before we go on. It's, yeah. it's and it, it's not, it's not, a, it's not meant at you. It's October 31. And when we say this, and please okay. don't take this the wrong way. When no. we say, when we say people say October 31st, we call, we say, they don't know us, man. They're posers. They're fucking posers. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a running, that's a running thing. Oh, he said 31st. It's 31. And it's 31 to be fucking stupid ass, broken fucking English. You know, it should be properly. It would be 31st. Then I, that's my Voivod Warren Payne lyric sheet talking to me. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. October 30, October 31. You get it. That, that's what it, that's what it is. I love it. I stand corrected. And if anyone's going to correct no me on this podcast, it's going to be King Fowley. Absolutely. And you know what? <laughs> it's it's right there written out. There's no ST in the logo. I should have known. It's October 31. Yeah. There's no, yeah, there's no, we don't have our suey hats on. This ain't Mike Beer Country. When there's no yeah. ST. <laughs> okay, so October 31, uh, the band. Now, um, you released the first full length, uh, The Fire Awaits You, in 1997. Uh, could you maybe just talk a little bit about what inspired you to start October 31? And um, I know that there's members of the band Twisted Tower Dire that play uh, kind of a big role in October 31, if I got that right, right? Yes. Uh, how it started was in 1990, late 94, I got a call from a guy out of North Carolina, and he got on the phone and he said, Hello there, this is Brian Williams. I play for a band called Overlord, and I'd love to play some shows with your band, Deceased. 
And I said, where the hell are you calling from, man? He's like, North Carolina. I was like, boy, you got an accent, man. I'm a, I'm a Virginia boy. And so we started talking, and he told me he was older than me. And, you know, I was like, wow, that's fucking cool. He's like, I've been playing in bands for years. I used to play in a band called Rock City. I used to be in fucking all these cover bands. We were one of the biggest cover bands in the United States. We do everything from Quarter Flash to Def Leppard and all this shit. You know, I've been playing guitar for, I think at the time, it was like 35 years. And I was like, wow. wow, man. So some reason we got on the subject of Uriah Heep, Abominog, the album, which is my favorite record by any band ever made. And I don't know what brought that up. But it was, he's like, oh, I love that fucking record, man. So we just made instant fucking fun on the phone with each other. And he said, maybe we should get together sometime and jam. I said, dude, I love it. I play drums. You play guitar. And he goes, I could bring a bass player down and a rhythm guitar player. and We could put something together. So I said, yeah. So I had this name in my head for the while. I was like, let's call it Suspiria, like the movie. I was like, let's call it Suspiria, man. We came down and somewhere I went, you know what? I want to kind of make this a show band, like what's a stage show. I said, let's call it October 31, like Halloween, you know, it's fucking cool. And I, and I said, let's don't put the SC in there so it'll be weird, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> so, so he shows up and he asked me what he said. And I told him, I said, learn a couple old Metal Blade Band songs. I said, I said why, don't we, why don't we learn Warlord, fucking Child of the Damned? Why don't we learn Lizzie Borden, Lot of Iron? And why don't we learn Jag Pans are Harder Than Steel? So he showed up, he knew those three songs, him and his guys were ready, the bass player and rhythm he brought down were fucking amazing. We went in this fucking room for two days, they spent the night, we, that Saturday, our Friday night and all day Saturday, we wrote this demo, which was ended up being called Voyage to Infinity Demo. We wrote a song called Voyage to Infinity, we wrote one called When Darkness Covers the Sun, The Fire Awaits You, uh, and we fucking had this tape. And fucking, I was like, wow. And then he's like, yeah, these guys don't really want to stay in the band, though. They just did it for fun. It's you and me, King. I said, all right, well, cool. I said, well, you know, ask them if they'll at least come up and record these songs. I will go over to this, my friend's studio. We'll just lay it down. And we'll have this tape. And, this, and I said, I will sing clean. You know, I said, I'll, I'll fucking sing. And I'll try to sing. You know, because when I was a kid of in, my, in the messenger days, let's go back there. I used to fucking sing my ass off. I mean, I had the Neil Turbin fistful of metal voice. I could do all those highs, Man of War, all that shit. Even tried out for a band called Maniacs back then, got the gig. They found out I was 16 and told me I couldn't have it because I couldn't get into a bar. But anyway, uh, so I said, let's see if I got any of that left now. You're talking about a guy that was sucking down 151 nightly, all those years of PCP, death metal from the grave, screaming out of my, my lungs. I said, let's try it. So we went in there, and I sang it, and I was pretty monotone, but I was at least in key, and fucking we put this demo down. And again, this is at the time when heavy metal was the bad words, and fucking I just sat on it, okay? And then I fucking asked a friend of mine, uh, Jim Hunter, the guy from, he was playing in Revelation at the time, and he, it was a good friend of mine, he, he was going to school in um, Oklahoma, he was in college, and I said, man, can you lay out this demo tape for me, man? He's like, oh, what, you got another band going? Because he loved to see. So I said, yeah, man. He goes, yeah, send me a tape. I sent it to him, he goes, dude, you ever need a fucking bass player i'm fucking there for you dude this shit is killer so fucking i said thanks he gives me he makes me the demo cover we go get them professionally made i get the professionally made stickers and i start handing them out well somewhere one got somebody named stan costin in chicago got a hold of one of them and he, he calls me and i'm like how the fuck did this guy get my number because it's not on the demo tape and it, and it fucking turns out he's like yeah this guy knew you from deceased and he's like dude let's do a fucking record and I said, do a fucking record. I was like, dude, we just got that demo. We're not even a full band right now. And he goes, you want to do one? I go, yeah. He goes, man, you got to call it the fire awaits you if you do it, man. That's a great title for a record. I said, all right, man, let's fucking do it, man. So fucking, uh, I went and Jim, Jim got out of college. He came back and I said, look, 
it's it's us, dude. It's you, me, and Brian. And Brian had this friend named Kevin who came in as second guitar for a while, but personal problems sent him back home. So it's just us three. So we went in the fucking studio and we wrote these songs and redid the ones from the demo. And we started putting like Salem's Curse, A Million Goodbyes. Um, what else was on that fucking thing? There was um. Oh, uh, uh, what was? Oh, I love the other two, and I can't even fucking think of the name. Oh, the, the instrumental we did on there, Vindication. That was fucking cool. But we had these. We had an album, and this guy put it out, and I was like, "Wow, R.I.P. Records, pretty generic name, pretty independent label looking fucking release." And he just did it on CD, and I was like, "All right, that's killer, man. We got an album out. If nothing ever else happens, this is great." Now, me and Brian are on the phone all the time. I'm jamming with with him about as much as I'm jamming with the C's. He's just taking trips down from North Carolina five hours uh, weekends uh, each way. And so next thing I know, man, I get I had a fax machine from my old metal records and a fax comes through and it's from Hellion Records and it's this guy Jurgen Hellywald. And fuck it, it says, oh my God, this fucking record is amazing. Fire awaits you best heavy metal records come out of America in at least a decade. And I'm like, what's this guy smoking? <laughs> what the fuck? He was he was freaking out, dude. He goes, dude, I have to fucking I have to fucking uh, do something with the band. And I said, well, you know what? And he's like, I don't know. And then, so I went back to Stan and Stan goes, if you want to work with him, you're welcome to it. And I said, well, we don't have any more tunes. And now Kevin had come back to the band. I said, I'm going to put out an e uh, uh, EP on my own little label, Old Metal Records. I'm going to put it out and see what happens. So we put this fucking record out, man. And fucking who gets in touch with me after this? Fucking Metal Blade Records. <laughs> Wow. And I'm like, I'm okay. I'm also thinking Deceased has been around at this point for like 11, 12 years. I'm like, and this is how easy it is. I said, everything's happening for fucking October 31. The next thing you know, man, we're offered to go to fucking Vakken and play in fucking Vakken, man. <laughs> and I'm like, what the fuck? So I know I'm getting ahead of the story. You wanted to just know how we got the fire awaits you. But all this just, it was like a whirlwind, man. It was like a yeah. fucking whirlwind. Yeah. And we, and I had never, and at this point, we, we had fucking. We had played live like three or four times, and I didn't sing at the shows. I actually got a singer in. A friend of mine sang. He was horrible, but he was a fun front man. He did about two or three shows. He was kind of like an Aussie type. Couldn't really sing, but he could entertain. Then he didn't want to do it much anymore, and he, he backseated it. Then we got a guy that could sing his ass off like Rob Halford on Unleashed in the East, but he, he did two shows, and he walked. He disappeared. He left us hanging at one show where I had actually, actually had to sing and play drums at an October 31 show. So when it was time for Vakken, I said, I don't know what we're going to do, man, but I'm going to fucking sing at Vakken. And we got Dave Castillo, who was in a local band, Hatred, who ended up being in Deceased later on, to play drums. And we went to Vakken, dude. I'd never played live, sang live in front of a band. Dave had never played drums, not a warm-up show, nothing for October 31. And we played to fucking 22,000 people, man. <laughs> Wow, that's, nice that's it was fucking yeah. it was fucking nuts. And the weirdest thing was every fucking person there, and there's videos on YouTube you can go look of everybody singing it, man. They're singing the tunes, and I'm like, whoa, this is fucking insane. Wow, man, that that's awesome. And uh, you know, you met you did mention Dave Castillo, um, and I did want you know rest in peace. Obviously, we did want to bring that up. And it's it's funny you also mentioned singing and doing drums at the same time. Which, if the listeners don't realize, you were both the drummer and the vocalist at the same time of Deceased. Uh, pretty much since from, from the beginning uh, up until the album as the Weird Travel On, if I got that correct. Yeah, actually, I, I actually was, once I got a taste of it with October 31, 
I said, man, I want to do this with Deceased too. Let's get Dave to be the drummer for Deceased. And we kept it a secret for about a year. We, we, we worked Dave into being the drummer for Deceased. And around 2003 was my last shows on drums and singing. And then Dave came in and started playing drums. Unfortunately, in 2004, I had a stroke. So <laughs> that's what it took till 2005 as the Weird Travel On to get Dave Castillo on an album. But yeah, that's exactly how it happened. Wow. And, um, but, and I want people to also know the stroke isn't what caused me to stop playing drums and singing. I'd already stopped before that. I just, I, this is what I always say, and I'll say it to you too. When I was playing drums and singing, all I could ever think about was I'd love to get off this fucking, get my butt cheeks <laughs> off this fucking drum stool and run around and be a fucking freak. I'm kind of happy in a way that it didn't happen when I was way younger and way out of control because if somebody was to be a dick in the crowd or it was an incident, I would have been right in their face. And it might not have been as good as me being behind my rack toms, you know, kind of like in a different situation, you know, because there's, you know, we've dealt with clowns over the years here and there. Once in a blue moon, you get a fool. Somebody throws a bottle or something. It happens. But, you know, when you're behind the kid, I laugh about it. I tell the guy to come up and then they don't. And that's the end of it. But to be up front and somebody's shit, it could have gotten bad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, maybe it's maybe it's for the best that they had you. Um. Uh, restrained yes. back there behind the kit. You know? Restrained's a good word. That's exactly yeah. how I felt, though. And I had to <laughs> yeah. get out there and do it. Once I was out there, I said I should have been doing this from day one. <laughs> yeah. So, so Dave, uh, Dave Castillo comes up, and that would make him the second drummer in deceased entire history. Then, right? Actually, the third because our, our first, I was actually originally the bass player in deceased's okay. first few months. We had a drummer named Marcel Dos Santos who actually ended up playing live drums for Atheist on their third album uh he was their live drummer he moved to florida but he he was in love with his girlfriend more than he was his drum set and so that was the drum set i started practicing on and learning all these cover songs early on to take over drums we were doing slayer and sodom and hyrax tunes you're talking about 84 here 85 it wasn't deceased yet we were we had those early names mace evil axe <laughs> the name that doesn't sound cool now but when you're 15 it sounds cool as a motherfucker <laughs> So, so, yeah, Marcel DeSantos was first, I was second, Dave Pascala was third. So, and now, does Dave plays on 2005's As the Weird Travel On, but in 2011, did you resume drums on Surreal Overdose? I, I did. I'll tell you what happened here. Okay. I wanted to play, I wanted to play drums again. And Dave had Dave uh, got a girl pregnant, and he took some time off to uh, have a daughter. And he was thinking about possibly retiring from everything. He obviously came back, but he uh, wanted time off. And I wanted to prove to everybody I can still fucking do this. Now, when I had my stroke in 2004, I had it was the right side of my brain which affects your left side. I'm left-handed, so all my all my memories intact. But my physicalness of my left side was destroyed. Even to this day, my pinky and next finger up, my, uh, I guess it's my ring finger, those fucking are destroyed. So when I, even when I still write the tunes and shit, I always write, to this day, I write all the tunes on drums and I usually even record the demos. Uh, fucking, it, it's a fucking freak show. You never know what day, what nerve damage is going to show up. Some days it's, there's nothing. Other days it's, it's a painful mess and it's been 16 years since this. So, yeah, I wanted to prove I could do that, and I did that entire Surreal Overdose album, all the drums, the entire album, in four hours that day. The guy was like, yeah, you can do it over the over two weekends. I said, nope. Once I do this shit, dude, I'm not going to be able to fucking walk, or I'm going to lean funny for the next two <laughs> two months. And it was yep. true. I, for four, I mean, we did it. I Four hours, I did all, all eight tracks, whatever it was, and fucking I was done. He's like, man, you just did it all. I was like, dude, get in, beat it out, and I'm done. I'm fucking done. And I had wow. it. It was something for me. And it was, you know, obviously David walked away 
and it, it's just it just is what it is, you know. And that that's that's how it goes. We had a we had another drummer step in for a while too, a guy named Eric Mays, who was really good friends with Shane and played in his other band. Uh, he was in a band called Biovore. Uh, they're all, they also have another band called Bionic Man. They did. Eric Mays has also passed away from health reasons. He died a few years ago. So yeah, Eric Mays stood in live. Uh, when Dave took the break, and I played on the record, Serial Overdose, while Dave took the break. Okay, just curious about that, and just to, uh, to clear up any misconception for listeners and for fans, because we're hoping that maybe some of uh, the younger listeners will like pursue the deceased dis- discography. It's very rewarding. Uh, and um, uh, Dave comes back to play drums on 2018's Ghostly White, uh, and as many people know, it was it was very big in the, um, uh, the, the, the news cycle, or the heavy metal news cycle around that time. Dave tragically um, passed away. Uh, uh, be, 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 I guess after the recording of the album and before the release of the album, right? Right. Yeah, dude. We had just recorded this thing, and again, like I said, we're, we're all older now. Dave lives in Virginia. Shane lives in DC. Uh, fucking Les, our bass player, lives in Texas. Mike Smith, the guitar player, he per- currently lives in Europe. I mean, he's overseas right now. Uh, fucking, he's he's over there. He does, he's a government guy. He's always over over out of the, out of the fucking uh, country. And I'm up here in Pennsylvania, so it was a lot of hard work. And me, Shane, and Mike wrote that record. We didn't even use bass. Last stayed in Texas. We got everything. We told him what the bass was going to do. He came in a week before and learned it all. And Dave was learning it little by little. I'd give him demo tapes of shit, and he would learn it too. When we went in to do that record, Dave was so nervous. He was like, "Man, this is the fucking biggest album we've ever done, man. We got the you know great fucking you know production going here and all this shit." And he was so nervous. The dude kicked so much fucking ass, dude. And I was so fucking happy for this guy. And I remember we got we finally got the mastered CDR from the uh, from the master, and we were driving to Cincinnati. Me, him, and a guy named Steve, and Dave was in the back seat, and I, I, he said, let me hear it, man, and I gotta hear it in the car, man, on the stereo now. So I put it in, we, I, we didn't say a word from the beginning of the record to the end of the record, and it was over. I looked at him in the rearview mirror, and I said, we did it, man. We fucking did it. He turned around, and we fucking shook hands and kind of hugged through the front driver's seat to the back, and we just were like, wow. And we went and played that show in Cincinnati that night. We came home, and the next week, he went to El Salvador to visit his parents. He was El Salvadorian. Visit his parents who he hadn't seen in a while Thanksgiving, and he fucking drowned in the ocean, dude. Yeah. He yeah, fucking... He, he, and he wasn't even in the fucking ocean, man. He was throwing the fucking Frisbee with his brother because Dave could not swim at all. Dave was a muscular fucking Herculean type of fucking dude. The girls loved him. That motherfucker had it all. He had just gone to that fucking mountain in Peru and ran that motherfucker. That, what's that thing called? Mikachu or Maka? <laughs> Machu Picchu. Thank you, <laughs> thank you. I was. I'm going to call Pikachu. <laughs> yeah, he had just no he had just gone that play, show. Play. I mean, this guy was a gym. He was a gym rat. Everything, man. He was sitting there throwing the frisbee with his fucking brother, man. And a riptide came, and and his brother said it was like Star Wars. He said the fucking sand collapsed. It shot his brother, who was an excellent swimmer, close, even more to the shore. And it took Dave out a hundred yards. Shot him out a hundred yards on the other side of the riptide. He was fucking wailing his arms his brother jumped in the life part said nope you can't be in the riptide you're gonna die too get out of the water let's hope for the best they watched him go under about 45 minutes later 30 minutes 45 minutes later his mother was there too they were standing there and fucking obviously in tears and the lifeguard came over and this is this is fucking awful they said the sharks probably got him you know the sharks probably got him and then dave came to he washed up the shore 
and fucking, I won't go from there out of respect to his brother, but his brother just told me, man, to Emotion City. And when I got the call, I was sitting upstairs with my wife watching Monday Night Football. She was asleep, and somebody left a message on my phone. Dave's gone. We called him Scarface. Scarface is dead, and I called him back, and he told me that. I ain't been right since, dude. I ain't been fucking right since. One of my yeah. best, dearest friends. Of, dude, wasn't that just a bandmate, dude? He was one of my best friends in the world. The dude would do anything for anybody, and he did. It's a, it's, it's fucking life, man. It's the luck of the corpse, man. Yeah. Um, well, rest in peace uh, to Dave, and, and our condolences, obviously, King, um, to you Thank on you. that. And uh, like you mentioned, to all the members you've lost, um, you know, you, you talk about this luck of the corpse. And for me, to be perfectly honest with you, as an interviewer doing the research today, I wanted to be perfectly respectful to you um, in regards to, to the many people you've lost throughout the course of your musical career, members of Deceased and other people like that. Um, but it, it definitely, uh, it seems like you've been through a lot and the band has persevered through a lot. And um, the, the album Ghostly White, I remember, you know, it's just two years ago. It was actually, if I'm not mistaken, your first album on Hell's Headbangers. Which yeah the first yeah yeah the first uh, new record like a new yeah. sound, uh, new record of new material yeah absolutely yeah which seems to be in this day and age a more appropriate label for deceased because they catered like you were talking before how death metal and black metal split it seems like Hell's Headbangers caters to that audience that remembers death metal and black metal as more of a unified concept from the eighties and early nineties and that sort of thing and it seems like with Hell's Headbangers. You're you're kind of right there in the in the market for for the type of fans that that like deceased. Is is, is that do you do you get that? Do you see that? I, I, I surely do, man. And in truth, in all honesty, I tore up record contracts from Relapse. I tore up the Metal Blade contract with October 31 due to bullshit, nonsense, lies, all that kind of shit. We've been on Hell's Headbangers a few years now because you know before they did the new record they also put out re-released a lot of the old material they did mm -hmm. that huge wooden coffin thing for us that the Amish made by hand and all this stuff everything they promised man they fucking delivered and we don't ask for the world man we just ask for a fucking fair shake man we're straight up we're from the old school of fucking verbal handshake um, a man's handshake kind of thing we're that that guy and they've been nothing but like that to us man I couldn't say one fucking thing down the line from their fucking layout artists to their fucking promotional department to their fucking you know distribution to their quality of their product everything is fucking how I want it as good as it can fucking be and I love them, man. They're, they're positively the best label out these days. Positively, no doubt about it. Awesome, yeah. And um, and the uh, we should mention right now that the, that uh, uh, deceased and October thirty one have a lot of a lot of different formats, a lot of different merchandise available through Hell's Headbangers. If people want to look into that, uh, both bands have are, are on Bandcamp. Uh, if people want to buy digital, uh, or, you know, get into that, stream the music, that sort of thing. And King, you know, we, we do want to be respectful of your time. You've been so generous. If I could just ask you uh, a few questions from some of our um, uh, recent guests that wanted, wanted to ask you a yeah, question. Yeah, whatever you need, brother, I'm here for you. Go ahead. Okay. Awesome, man. And right now we're kind of getting more into the Halloween stuff, if we could get any more Halloween, because um, our, our frequent guest, Paulo Paguntalan, who runs P2 Records in New York City and has been in several bands, uh, uh, he, he wants to know, what's your favorite Edgar Allan Poe story? It's the Telltale Heart, man. It just is. It's the Telltale Heart, man. Mm -hmm. That when I was when I was a kid, man. That fucking tale, man. I, 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 I. The first time I ever heard it. Here's a here's a little Halloween tale for you. 
I was my my dad had just died. We were living at a place called the Callmore Apartments. It was 1974. My dad died early 1974. It was Halloween night, 1974. Me and my sister were being watched by my mother's sister, Marlene. My mom came home from work. It was snowing. It was snowing on Halloween this year. My mom said, I, my mom said, where's Kelly? It was my sister. Mar, Marlene said, she's sound asleep. King's here on the couch back and forth. I said, mom, you're home. You're home. She gave me a little bit of candy, some Laffy Taffy, some Reese's peanut butter cups, whatever the fuck she gave me. She said, you got enough energy to come outside? Mama's got a gift for you in the car. I said, yeah, let's go. Went outside. I said, wow, it's snowing. She said, yeah, it's been snowing the last couple hours, and it was snow on the ground. And we went to the car, and she opened it, and I remember my mom making this noise. She went, woo, and she went, look what Mama got you, and she hands me a record. It's called Famous Ghost Stories, and it's made, made by Pickwick Records with Mr. Pickwick, this guy with this red scarf on it. And I looked at it, and I remember opening it right there. It was sealed. And she probably got it for like a dollar eighty-eight at the fucking dart drug. And she opened up. We opened it up, and there was a little fucking hand trash bag ghost in it. You put your hand in it, you know. And she's like, "Look!" And all this. I said, "Mom, thank you so much." We turned around started walking back to the apartments. My mom looked over and we saw something. We saw somebody dressed up as like a bunny. And my mom said, oh my God. She said, hurry up, hurry up. She scooted me inside. My mom got really fucking scared. We got inside. And my mom said, that was the bunny man. Now, I now I know you guys know urban legends and all this stuff. The bunny man. Okay. Well, it turns out this guy was a, was a criminal that fucking was dressed as the bunny man. And he had blood on him. I remember him having blood. He couldn't have been more than 40 yards from us. And my mom pushed me in the house. And I, I went up in, into my bedroom, which I shared with my sister at the time, in the apartments. And I looked out my fucking my window all night and kept waiting for that gym to look up at me and see me. Now, I get the chills telling you the story now. But that stuck with me, okay? And what stuck, stuck with me as we go forward is that record is part of that night. So I get that inside that record. On that record was the Telltale Heart was one of the tunes on there it was one of the fucking stories and the guy just told it you know how you know it was just so spooky and it's always stayed with me as the fucking spookiest fucking thing ever and i've taken from that record a lot i've taken uh a very familiar stranger from supernatural addiction is taken from a, another yeah. tale on there that record means the world to me edgar Allan poe is my absolute favorite i one of his houses is over here in philadelphia i've been there twice i you know i saw where he, where he wrote some of his tales and stuff and his wife got ill it's, it's crazy. But yeah, The Telltale Heart, far and away, my favorite story by him. Wow. Okay. That that was more than I was prepared for right there. And, yeah, and right. I want to tell you this, too, in, in closing. That really was the bunny man. He was he was locked up two days after they caught him. They put him in jail for years. And then years later, I asked my mother, we were sitting in front of the TV. And I, one day I said, Mom, remember that bunny man when I was little? And she goes, yeah, what about him? And she goes, yeah. He, and I said, was that real? Did that really happen? I said, I remember it really. She goes, yeah. She goes, he got locked up. They put him in jail. You know, he was in the place for the criminally insane. I said, really? She said, yeah. And not fucking two days after that happened. All true. I give you my word. Now, two days later, I was sitting in the fucking TV again. The news came on and they said there was a man who was released who had been had, had committed. He never killed anybody. He had injured people. He had gone at people with an axe and went to attack them. He had got blood on. He had shot at people, but he didn't kill anybody. They let him out, and he had died underneath Route 29. They said they found him with a fucking hot pot and some beans, and he was fucking dead in a fucking tunnel underneath Route 29. And fucking, it, I saw, they showed this old man. They were like, this was him, you know, 83-year-old, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, 
that's the guy I saw when I was a kid. And I wasn't scared of him at all. It was like a little old janitor-looking guy. It's spooky. I put that I, every year, you, you know, if, if, in my Facebook page, I always bring that tail up and I put the pictures of the, because every town supposedly has a bunny man. Well, that was ours. And I guess he was taking the bunny man legend and killing off of it. Kind of like, what is it, Friday the 13th, part five, you know? Yeah. <laughs> what, yeah. Is, well, what is no Jason? <laughs> well, when you get into those Friday the 13th and, new, and uh, Nightmare on Elm Street and Halloween, I've always thought that a lot of that, that um, those movies and how big they were in the 80s, was based off of like uh, our our urban legends and our very true to life serial killer stories that that grew to prominence in the seventies. Well, if you go if you go to Ghostly White and listen to our thirteen minute plus song "Germ of Distorted Lore," that's mm-hmm. exactly what that song's about. It's about all these uh, dumbed down tales of these people are based on real you know real kid murderers you know fucking real things that happen in the world and they they dumb them down to less spookify the fact that you know people are killing kids and etc etc so yeah that's that's exactly what it came from but i wanted to tell you that because the telltale heart makes me think of that record which makes you think of that easter which makes you think of the buddy man yeah no that was just a halloween uh answer for that question on steroids yeah right that's great man (laughs) creepy okay uh Next question um, from Adam Rotella, kind of a, a local noise core legend and aspiring horror movie director who we have on the show uh, sometimes. He wants to know what's the goriest movie you've ever seen. Man, that's hard to say, man. The goriest. I mean, it, it, it almost comes to the point where it has to be something that looks looks pretty real. I mean, you know, I gory to me could be. I could go. We could sit here and talk about. Anything. I mean, you know, some of the classic scenes that everybody knows, like the the, the shotgun scene in, in Maniac is phenomenal. The Dawn of the Dead, same thing for a gory scene. You know, obviously, Dawn of the Dead's a pretty gory movie for what it is. You get into these unknown movies like the Mutation. Uh, what was the fucking one movie? Oh, it's not the Mutations. Oh, I'm forgetting it. I never forget. What the fuck is it? Um, the Abominations is what it was called. Like these ones where it's just gore on top of gore or like. Extreme Pestilence 90 where they're like ripping out enterals of a baby doll supposed to be baby's guts and eating them and shit but it looks so fucking ass cheap so to, <laughs> to say which one is the gore, the goriest you know I'm gonna stick with the, with uh, you know just scenes you know the, the fucking the the fucking the blown up guy in Maniac Tom Savini being shot and blown up in Maniac is a fucking great scene or the yes. uh, you know or just the, the intense scenes of like the blow the blowtorch lady and don't go don't go in the house you know that fucking thing yeah. just just you know, it's 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 it really is in the mind. A guy asked me a while back what what the scariest horror movie character ever was. I said the dark. And he said, "What do you mean?" I said, "It's not a person. It's the dark. It's what's in the dark. And what's in the dark? The dark." I said, "That's the scariest thing ever. That's the real you know horror movie guy." But yeah, I, I mean pieces. You, you know, consider just name movies here. Yeah, go all over the place. And I just you know, New York Ripper's got some savage scenes. You know, fucking. Um, all, Tons of shit. Last battle from the left, man. I mean, not so much a gore, but I mean, an intense, I mean, that rape scene, you know, that's just pretty fucking intensely real. You know, that that gets me more than anything, you know, that kind of shit. But uh, I've watched them all in my day, man. I've, uh, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Um, and I definitely, uh, definitely not a surprising question from Adam. Adam's all about the gore. Uh, and here's, I, I, I don't know. If you might recall, Mike Zancelli from New York's Paragon Records and the band Dimension On, he actually interviewed you for Public Access TV with Jim uh, from Paragon Records many years ago. Oh and yeah, I don't remember that, but yeah, I like that he did it really on a videotape. 
I, I guess he said he said for a public access show he interviewed you. This is probably going back to the early '90s, knowing Mike. I mean, um, I'd love to see that it's on video. I'd love to see it. Man, tell I'll, him, I'll, hey, tell him I'll get in see touch. if he's got it. I'll ask him if he's got it. Maybe if he has a copy of it, we could YouTube it for everybody. That would be cool. Um, I collect all that stuff. Yeah, and I'll, I'll tell you something once you're done with your questions. Take your time. I'll be here as long as you need me. But I want to tell you something outside of that. Go ahead. Okay, awesome. Well, uh, he wanted to know, he says, I know King is a fan of Dark Tranquility, Sky Dancer, Septic Flesh, Mystic Places of Dawn. Uh, I'd be curious to know if he still follows those bands and what has come out recently in the last few years. I have stayed up with them. Um, a little bit, not as much. It's more like a YouTube fucking like open the door and see what's behind it kind of thing. Septic Septic Flesh got really fucking weird to me, and not in so much a good good way. Oh, I liked a lot yeah. of those bands at the time. Like I also liked like early Orphan Land. That was another band I liked. They were good, but some of these bands just it seems like they got caught up in like this industrial techno kind of stuff, which does does nothing for me really at all. It never has none of that stuff at any on any level. It just doesn't, and it kind of got away from it there was a point where some of those bands had just enough metal in them still where it worked but then when it kind of like drifted past that it kind of became like clubbish if that makes sense kind of like down it just it just didn't do it for me dark tranquility i think i checked up on something uh of them a while ago and it sort of sounded the same still you know for the most part some of those european bands they get too happy like they have like that you know like like i i I call it that halloween itis where it just gets too Uh happy and it's, it's 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 not always bad. I like some early Halloween, um, but fucking, it, I honestly and truly, you could put it on right now and say, "What is this king for a million dollars?" And I probably wouldn't get it right. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, uh, atmospheric metal and gothic techno can be a thin line that, that you got to yeah, walk sometimes. That, that Gothenburg Swedish yeah. metal scene has turned into basically yeah. anything but metal <laughs> in a lot of respects. I mean, Dark Tranquility's latest thing I checked out kind of sounded more like you two. It was very strange. Well, I, and I can and I can imagine that. I can see these guys like evolving to that. And for me, like with the seas, we've evolved too. Like people say, evil side of religion doesn't sound nothing like ghostly white. But to me, ghostly white is still one hundred percent deceased, and it's still metal to the core. It's just some of these bands they just they get sidetracked. I remember like a lot of those bands like Amorphous. All of a sudden, they were like folky. You know, it was like folk music sometimes. I'm like. Oh, this is out of my range. It just doesn't do it for me. And to each their own. They got their own name. They can live with whatever they do. But yeah, I agree with you, man. Like, you know, it, it's just, I don't know. It's just once it's, it's not metal anymore, like it's very little metal, it, it loses me. But I'm fine with like, I mean, I like 45 Grave and some goth music and shit like that. I got no problem with, you know, stuff like that at all. Oh, yeah. but, it, but when it's it, when it's a hybrid of things, it's a fine line, man. Like, cause I mean, like one of the worst things ever made to me is typo negative. That's Ooh. like something like that. That's one We're of the worst York, things. We're in New York. Yeah, I know. I know. I gotta be honest. I gotta be honest with you, man. I gotta be okay, honest with okay. you. All right. The, 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 the views and opinions of King Fowley do not necessarily represent that of the podcast crew. Okay. Exactly. You're I, 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 you know, your, your Just opinion, being right? genuine with you. That's all. I know you're entitled to your opinion. Uh, one last opinion I got to get out of you because I have I have I could go for days with these questions, but uh, to be respectful of your time and of our format, uh, my last question, kind of on that note, I've heard you speak in the past about enjoying Queensrÿche's Rage for Order album. My question for you is: uh, obviously, Queensrÿche has had a, 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 a roller coaster of her career for their fans. Have you followed the recent work with Todd Latore, and are you a fan of the way they've tried to bring things back with him? 
I'll say this. I got the Queen's Right EP when it came out. Everybody thought it was New Iron Maiden on the radio. I saw them on that tour, open for Twisted Sister in a bar. Their 19th show ever. Fucking phenomenal. The name of the next album at the time was Road to Madness. It wasn't called The Warning yet. The Warning came out. I fucking loved it. I thought it was great. I thought it was a little bit stiff in the playing as if the songs weren't practiced enough before they recorded it, but I loved it. Rage for Order came out, and it's still, to this day, one of my favorite records ever made by anybody. You talk about a perfect record. They found a way to keep their metal, to get outside, go pop. They had, a, they even had some of that, you know, that almost goth yeah. in there with that fucking Gonna Get Close to You cover on there. Operation Mindcrime, another fucking 10. Loved it. Empire was the first time I saw the ship going down a few notches. Some good <laughs> stuff on there. The Thin Line, Best I Can is a pretty good opener for as happy as it is. Uh, yeah. Thin Line is my tune on that one. And then, and then after that, I really enjoyed Promised Land. And I know that Me was too. the time when everybody was staring at their shoes, but it was dark. And I liked most of that. I didn't like the bridge song, but I liked everything other than that. Then Here and Now Frontier came out. And fucking, they lost, they lost me. I remember buying that record. I had the CD in the car. I was yeah. driving home to play it, and they played something. I said, this sounds like New Queen's Rake. I hope it's a New Queen's Rake. And it was that Sign of the Time song. And I thought it sucked. And I didn't uh. even keep the CD. I didn't even keep the CD. I threw it out the car driving home. I was like, fuck, this is... Ugh. And I finally heard it, and I did not like it, except for maybe one song. I saw the tour. Typo Negative opened the tour. <laughs> I, I, I saw that tour, too. I saw that yeah, tour, typo too. Typo Negative yeah. opened the fucking Dude. tour. And then I said, all right, let's see what the next one brings. And then I couldn't put it in order because I mean, up to there, I could tell you the, when it came out, who played on it. Then it became like Q2K and fucking, oh, you know, God. all those yeah. tribe and all that shit. And it was terrible. It was like college alternative rock meets Pink yeah. Floyd. I mean, they just took that silent lucidity format and just shit, you know, shit it out. And then when fucking, when fucking... Todd came in, I kept hearing, they're going to go back to their metal ways. They're going to be metal again, because Jeff Tate was one that didn't like metal. Well, I heard the first one. I said, it's okay. It's all right. It's not bad. I give it a five. Then I heard the second one. I was like, ah, this is actually worse than the last one. It's probably a four. And then I heard, I think it's the, the newer one, and I did not like that at all. And it almost sounds like, the, I think it's the third. They've done three, right, with him? If I'm not mistaken, they had, yeah, I think technically, because they might have had an EP. I know they have Conditioned Human was the first full length with him. The Verdict, yeah, that is, wasn't the, bad. Is, the new, the Verdict is the new album with him. The newest that, album. That one, now, that one to me sounds like college rock. Oh, even man. even Even my guitar player, Matt, who's in Deceased Live, he's a Queensryche freak. He said, man, it's terrible. Can't stand it. Okay, well, I'm, I, I'm a Queensryche head uh, you know I, I death metal gore grind grindcore i love it but queensrike i will always be like loyal to to a right. point i even i even own a copy of here in the now frontier i'm not ashamed not that i listen to it much anything between that and todd latore obviously i kind of discount uh jeff tate solo stuff i do i really did into. like i did like operation mind crime too i liked a lot of that record i did mm. like that mm. all right all right king <laughs> I right, did. King. I don't. Yes. Hey, it's not. It's not in league with Operation Mindcrime Part One. But when I'm putting it against what they were doing at the time and since, I still think it's the best work they did. Since. Okay. All right. All right, King. We're we're gonna have to agree <laughs> to disagree on on Queensrÿche <laughs> matters for now, my friend. I I think we could definitely agree up until uh, Empire, you and me, man, and Promised Land. I think is underrated. Uh, but that's we could go a whole other two hours on that subject, man. I'm not gonna open you up. Um. But, uh, King, you know, we do, as I said, we want to be respectful of our format and of your time. We appreciate everything you've given us. And we always ask, before we let you off the hook, just to take one um, uh, out, one older album and one newer album by any artist, any genre, and just recommend it for the listeners. Hey, King Fally told, this, told me this was cool. I'm going to check it out. 
But he would, I mean, he would just send me to Iron Maiden. The, the best metal wow. record I've heard in the, in the last 10 years is Book of Souls, man. I love wow, Book of okay. Souls. I've played it over 150 times. And so, I mean, what are you going to do? Go back to the first Iron Maiden? Um, well, let's go with Voivod. Go back to people that don't know Voivod yet, or it's too weird for them, or it sucks, or they're fucking too odd, or the name doesn't fucking sit on their fucking tongue right. Go back and crank Warren Payne. Go find out that yes. early days of where that raw, fucking ugly, what I call rust metal comes from, that ugly fucking shit. And then go play the fucking Wake, their last full studio album, which is totally different, but totally the same fucking band all these years later. They do what I call the rush. It's where bands do it the right way. They can change in the right way, and it works. There's bands that, like, follow trends, and then they have this moment where they're like, it's totally, I'm going to, sadly, I'm going to have to use Overkill as the example here. I like Bobby Blitz. He's a nice guy. But Overkill totally got away from Thrash when that went out. And as soon as it came back and Thrash was hot again and Municipal Waste and Toxic Holocaust started getting popular, they went back to playing fast again and Thrash. So, you know, it didn't really sit with me, right? Because it, it was it was a sign of the times. No <laughs> no, here in the now <laughs> frontier, uh, pun there, <laughs> intended. Yeah. But yeah. that, it, yeah, I would say Warren Payne and The Wake from Voivod. Fucking, you're looking at fucking like... 35 years apart from each other, two totally different albums. You would never think it was the same band in a million years, and both incredibly freaky, and the word is dark, records. Wow. That, well, that's... Boy, what Bob, F -V -O -I -V -O -D. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah, and, and just for the Long Island person, he didn't say VOD, Long Island guys. That's a hardcore <laughs> band that was big here. Voivod from Canada, classic band, uh, and, and you're after my... Because, yeah... Um, uh, Roar too, their first album, or you know, however you pronounce it, with Roar, Roar and all the Roar O's the and everything. Roar was the second. Roar was the second one. It was after Warren. Okay, Day. okay. If anyone could school me, it's you, King. Um, but yeah, <laughs> hi highly recommended. And then yeah, as you go on, and interesting that you talk about the first album and the the most recent album, thirty five years in between, somewhat different, same band. Because I could say all that that you just said about Voivod about the difference between Luck of the Corpse in 1991 and Ghostly White in 2018. Obviously, vastly different, a lot of ground covered, but it's the same uh, attitude, I would say, and, and the same passion. That being said, uh, can you just leave our listeners off and deceased fans off? What are the plans for uh, the future? New albums, new recordings, that sort of thing. We just put out back this summer, Rotten to the Core 2. That's the right, nightmare yes, continues. Yeah. We did a Rotten to the Core original about 18 years ago. It's all hardcore and punk covers. It's another side of us. It's something I love, too. I grew up with, as I said earlier, I grew up with English Dogs, DRI, fucking all that stuff, MDC. These were big bands to me. I love my speed. Uh, we put this out over the summer on Malt Soda Records. Another thing cool about Hell's Headbangers, they let us do what we want to do. And Scooter, the owner of Malt Soda, is a great fucking friend and dear pal of ours. And he, we let him put it out. We cover everything from The Clash and The Buzzcocks to lethal aggression, to fucking uh, final final uh, final conflicts on there. What else do we fucking do? I can't even think right now. Uh, we do discharge on there. We do cryptic slaughter. But it came out this summer. We that's out on CD. Um, there's talk now. Uh, it's early things, but I have another thing we're gonna do. We're gonna do one more tribute. Uh, covers thing before we get to the next studio album while we're waiting for Mike who's finishing up his last year of work and he's going to be retired here in about a year Mike Smith so he'll be coming back to America uh, but we're going to do another thing it's called Thrash Times at Ridgemont High <laughs> and I love it it's going to be a, it's going to be all thrash covers we're going to get this out of our system then we begin work on our next studio album Children of the Morgue 
It'll be on Hell's Headbangers. It's probably two and a half years out, maybe three. But we're going to, as soon as Mike gets back here, about a year from right now, we're going to dig deep into it. We're not writing right now. We're going to wait till he's back. We do it the way we've always done it. The right people. We don't just rush anything. No rent records. Remember, no rent records. But yes, we're going to do that. This is our 35th fucking year as a band right now. Obviously, this COVID has left us fucking sitting here fucking twiddling our thumbs. Fucking, we got one show in this year in Frederick, Maryland back in, I think it was February. And we had about 30 or 40 shows planned for this year and a lot of 35th anniversary fun to do. But we'll do it in our 36th year. Well, hopefully everybody's staying safe and whatever it takes to get through this fucking hell on earth. I call it the fucking death metal cave. We're all in the death metal cave right now. But, you know, that's what we're doing, man. We're, we're still here. And, and that's moving forward. We're going to keep doing what we do, man. Don't expect no techno remixes. Don't expect no college alternative. Fucking nothing. It's going to be death metal from the grave. Children of the morgue. Hell yeah. Uh, King Fowley of October 31 and yeah. deceased. Uh, thank you so much for your time tonight, brother. We really appreciate you uh, spending uh, the night with us here for our special Halloween episode. We wish you a, a happy Halloween happy weekend. Happy Halloween! Yeah, man. Uh, and uh, just quickly, any final words for fans of your music uh, or listeners of our podcast? To everybody listening out there, just take care of yourself. Be yourself. No robots. Fucking no gods, no masters. Fucking long live the loud. Hell yeah. All right, and King, one last thing I almost forgot to bring it up was uh, I understand that they're actually making some sort of a movie based upon your life now. This is true. It's been in the works for a few years. Um, a guy got in touch with me. Uh, he's become a dear friend to me. And uh, the, the movie's called King, A Metal Life. He came to me and said, hey, man, you've done a lot for the underground. You've done a lot for metal, man. You're a fucking interesting character. Let's do something on your life. We've been working on this for about five years now. A lot of time and effort and fucking big time fucking uh, attention to detail in this. Uh, we're trying to make it special and not just another fucking uh, everyday documentary. We're going to make it fun. Some of these crazy stories I told, you know, obviously we can't fucking find video footage just stuff that doesn't exist, but we can put animation to them. We can recreate these stories through that and we can tell a lot of them. You know, uh, a master tale to it all. What I mean by that is the good, the bad, and the ugly. You know, life is a learning lesson, and we still have it all there, man. You know, it's going to have the fucking music aspects, the heart tugs, the health fucking issues, the fucking life love, the fucking, you know, just anything and everything should be in there. We try to make it interesting start to finish. Uh, the director, Patrick Meager, he is uh, he's a great guy. He's doing a lot. Keep an eye out for it. It's probably still about a year year and a half out but he's going he's going deep for this and he's fucking he's going to try to get this in a lot of places that he would never expect it to be I used to laugh man I said man that ain't Ozzy Osbourne nobody gives a fuck about my life but me man but he said people do man and he won't let me laugh about it no more man and what I've seen him do so far has been really really cool and I really really am touched and uh, and, and thankful that people come to me asking about it so you know everybody loves their, their life man fucking uh, I love mine See if you love it too. One day on the big screen, hopefully. <laughs> Cheers. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, man. That that would be great. I look forward to that. Uh, it's that movie be coming out. Hopefully, the book getting reprinted and um and and the next deceased album. All that stuff, man. That's awesome. Awesome shit. Yeah. Keep keep touch, brother. And if you can find the, if those guys do have that old fucking video footage, man, dude, I'd love to get that. I collect all that shit. And that's what made me think of when you said the time of the movie because I'm all this footage. This guy's come to me. I have. We have hundreds and hundreds. One thing I was lucky about, all the way back to like the 80s when we started playing out the parties, we got them on videotape, man. A lot of that shit. And we could tell tales and we could piece things, even if it's seconds of it. 
he likes to have something from every year and any and everything is welcome man Okay, I'll definitely tell my friend Mike. I'll, I'll see if he's got that video, uh, if he's still got that footage. Yeah, anything. Anybody he's here from, and dude, I appreciate all three of you guys' time and fucking support, dude. It means the world to me, man. Likewise, brother. Right back at you, man. Hell yeah. Thanks for taking the time. You got it, brother. Be safe, guys. All the best. Wow, King Fally of October 31, as I learned. Don't ever tell him it's October 31st. And deceased on the Heavy Hole podcast. Uh, Wanted to do that for a long time. Uh, Glad I waited for this this very special Halloween weekend. Yeah, Halloween falls on October 31, everybody. (laughs) You got to watch what you say, bro. Watch your mouth right now, man. Uh, King Fally, not watching his mouth. Speaking his mind freely. Blunt man. I, I, yeah, we appreciate your candor here on the Heavy Hole Podcast. That was great. I uh, encourage all future guests to open up as much as possible. Yeah. Um, allegedly aside, go crazy like King Fowley does, telling it how it is. Yeah, everything on tonight's podcast was alleged, and it also does not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of the Heavy Hole Podcast team. Uh but something that does reflect my opinion is that I appreciate all of the listeners listening right now. Um, even if you just tune in for this, our uh, free weekly episode that we put out every week. Uh, obviously, there's a special Halloween-themed one for you. Uh, but our Patreon people are enjoying an entire weekend's worth of special Halloween bonus episodes with the illustrious likes of Paula Paguntala, Adam Rotella, Salvatore from Buckshot Face. What, what is going on? Um, Does that band even exist? I don't even. No. I'm not even sure. Are you, no yeah. one lets me know anymore. Okay. Yeah. The, the, the guy who owns Comiskey Park Bar is actually in charge of whether Buckshot exists. I don't know how that works. It's just he calls us up to play. Yeah, um, I think I saw Buckshot face up at the deli the other day. No, no, no. That uh, that was um, the Fat Boys. They're they're back. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> listen, uh, King Fowley, we appreciate your time. Uh, listeners, we appreciate your time. Patreon pledges, we appreciate your support. Uh, and you can hop on our Patreon, too, if you want more of this Halloween fun. There's still time left in the Halloween weekend. It hasn't even begun yet if you're listening to this uh, the day it drops. So uh, check us out on Patreon for all that bonus content. And even when it's not um, uh, uh, horrifying Halloween bonus weekend, we bring you that bonus content every month, uh, amongst other things. And um, you can check it all out at, at uh, what's that website? www.heavyholepodcast.com and Internet Explorer only. Mm-hmm. Oh. And, and during this pandemic, we're actually offering free premium. Ma- oh, no, that's the other one with the naked people. My bad. That's um, right. Yeah. Onlyfans.com. Uh, yeah. I don't know. We're not doing the OnlyFans thing yet. We're going to wait and see if this Patreon thing works out Alleged. before we go all the way in the gutter. Um, I'm in the gutter already. Oh, boy. Do you want to see how deep the hole is? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Listen, guys, you're getting a little too scary for me even now. Even though it's <laughs> Halloween, you're, you're starting to creep me out a little bit. Uh, I think maybe Bunny Man's out there or something. Uh, but sh- seriously, shout out to King Fowley. Shout out to all of you, the listeners. We hope everyone has a safe, uh, happy, and horrifying haunted Halloween weekend. Thank you very much for listening. Um, 
and uh, stay spooked. Yeah, it's good. Um, how? I, yeah, I don't know. Like all the candies come in packs of two or four, you know. So it's hard to say. Really? Well, Justin, I'm going to tell you what. If anyone gives me those uh, Reese's peanut butter cups, I'm going to share them with you. So you know how many are going to be left for me? That's one. 